0: Hello everyone and welcome to Motors and Friends, a weekly podcast from Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week's podcast is brought to you by Yamaha Motorcycles. Filling the gap between the entry-level R3 and the flagship Superbike R1, Yamaha's YZF-R7 is a great supersport machine that perfectly balances real performance with rider comfort. Check it out at yamahamotorsports.com. Or, of course, you can see it for yourself at your local Yamaha dealer. This podcast is also brought to you by the new, state-of-the-art Shoeberth C5. The modular C5 is a flip-up design that blends safety with amazing quietness within its compact, lightweight design. Visit Shoeberth.com for more information. This week, Senior Editor Nick De talks to us about the uber-cool new Yamaha XSR900. This gorgeous, retro-styled machine is another take on the awesome MT-09. There are some differences other than the styling, though, so it's interesting to hear Nick's thoughts on how this version of the original 3-cylinder 900 from Yamaha fits within the model range. In the second segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey talks with a true racing icon, Mr Daytona himself, Scott Russell. This is actually part one of two where scott takes us from his humble beginnings on the back roads of georgia and the start of his racing career through to the massive crash at daytona that ended that chapter of his life a notorious bad boy off track as well as shockingly naturally talented on track scott's raw telling in his signature southern drawl of how things unfolded for him is an absolute must listen from all of us here at ultimate motorcycling We hope you enjoyed this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of supersport machine. It's called our world, and the Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle as well as experienced riders seeking a fully-faired motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true Supersport performance with an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at yamaha-motorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. So the 2022
1: Yamaha Mm -hmm. XSR900 has just been updated for this new model year. And as we know, it came out a handful of years ago and it's benefiting from the the recent updates that the MT-09 motorcycles uh, received for the 2021 model year. So to that end, those bikes got a new engine, updated frame, which is significantly stiffer, updated suspension, Pretty much everything is all new on those bikes, except for a handful of carryover parts like the brakes and maybe some miscellaneous other things. But everything critical to the riding experience is all new. So the XSR 900 follows in its footsteps, bringing with it a you know a retro look that is uh, taking it from the '70s style of the the XSR 700 and 900 when they were first released. Into a more 80s style influence. Um, and this 2022 XSR 900 actually references Christian Serron's uh, 1984 250cc world championship winning
0: motorcycle. Wow, how cool. That's, that would have been his 500cc Grand Prix bike then. No, 250cc. His 250cc Grand Prix bike. Wow, how cool.
1: Yeah. So, the legend blue livery as Yamaha refers to it that references his bike directly and if you were to look at a photo of his his bike back to back. You know, with the, the color patterning and just the, the palette that they're working with it's a, a pretty obvious homage and I think a very tasteful one at that it also comes in a, a black colorway that they refer to as Raven black now. I'm not sure how you couldn't buy the Legend Blue Livery because it looks awesome, but you know that's here or there. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and with the with the new XSR 900 and taking it into that 80s GP look, they really are honing in on a much racier aesthetic, uh, we'll say, for this motorcycle overall. And you know, with that, you see a more flat topped, elongated fuel tank that references motorcycles of the 1980s uh, especially race bikes of the 1980s right um, and then the most obvious thing is the the seat itself it's a one-piece uh, seat and tail section and the the big boxy uh, area in the rear is supposed to reference again race bikes of that generation and there's some other little bits to to really hammer the point home so the side panel's just underneath the seat have D-ring fasteners that you can undo and pull off. Um, You know, the the passenger foot pegs are fold away to kind of just clean up that look on the subframe. They've also done some really cool things like uh, adding an aluminum backing plate under the subframe, which really just sort of cleans up that underside. So it's an an attention to detail that the XSR900 hasn't seen in past iterations. you know, and those are some of the standout features in terms of the aesthetics, but obviously our listeners can go and uh, look at the motorcycle and, and judge for themselves, we'll say. Um, awesome. You know, and a couple of the last things to touch on with the, the looks, well, before we kind of wrap that end up, is, uh, you know, it has LED lighting all around. So the round headlight, nice. the new bracket tree, which kind of hides some of the wiring a little bit better than the MT-09s. And uh, also the LED tail light, which is nestled just underneath that uh, one piece seat and tail unit. And that's actually a really awesome feature because of how low profile it is. So if you were to do a tail tidy and tuck away those uh, uh, turn signals and the license plate, I think that would look absolutely clean. Um, but yeah, that sort of wraps it up on the the visual side, we'll say
0: yeah it's it's uh it's really cool so uh, is the the motor and, and gearbox and electronics and so on that's all identical to the standard mTO9 isn't it correct uh, then and and for just a matter of
1: record it's actually identical to any of the uh, we'll say o9 motorcycles so I, I believe there's a different nomenclature that Uh, yamaha uses to describe those motorcycles but what i'm talking about is the mt09 the mt09 sp and the tracer 9 uh, gt series of bikes so they all share an engine and gearbox essentially and for the most part electronics if the tracer 9 has electronic suspension so it's a little bit different in that regard but more or less yes when we're talking about the hard parts of the the engine the 890 cc
0: triple cylinder cp3 motor same thing okay how does the, the sort of the changed riding position, I mean, is there any sort of, sort of difference in the, in the handling or the riding experience itself? I mean, I would, I would think it, it, it kind of looks like it's going to be lighter. It has obviously no body work and that kind of stuff. So is all the geometry? The yeah, screen? it's, it actually,
1: it gains just a a few pounds over the, the mt o nine So okay. the, yeah, and it's, there's a handful of bits and bobs that it has that the mt 9s don't so you know more more stuff adds more weight obviously sure. um the main thing that could be cited as gaining a bit of weight is that the subframe on the XSR is made out of steel uh the reason for that is because Yamaha is assuming and hoping that people will customize their bikes steel is an easier um uh you know metal to fabricate with apparently and uh you know just bolt things on and, and do whatever customizers will do and you know it, it has cruise control the fuel tank is a slightly different shape a little bit longer etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and it also has a longer swing arm so you add all of those things up and the mt09s go from or the m 09s sit at 417 fully fueled ready to go and that's a claimed weight, by the way. And then this bike sits at four twenty-five, so not a huge difference, but it's gained just a tad. Um, right. And and really, the 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 crux of the the question that you got at is the riding experience different. Yes, it's relative to the MT09s for sure, but there are some crucial differences, and we'll get into those right now. The riding position is one of those things that uh, definitely sets it apart from the the MT-09 naked sport bikes, which are a bit more traditional in their presentation and riding experience. They're a little bit more upright. Um, You know, you sit in a slightly more neutral position, despite the fact that those are positioned as the more sportier hooligan uh, motorcycles of the lot. And really with this 80s race bike vibe, Yamaha designers wanted to hone in on that by, lowering the seating position so the seat is actually lower you're kind of nestled in the bike a little bit more um okay. and it's not significantly lower than the MT9 it's about a half inch lower the seat height and uh the handlebars are now moved forward and down just a hair again canting you in slightly slightly more aggressive riding position So not too much um and then the foot pegs are are lowered accordingly to just gap out the uh the seat to peg ratio and keep it comfortable. Um, Overall, I actually prefer this riding position over the MT-09s. It's not a dramatic step in the more sporty territory. It's just that extra little sniff. And for me and, you know, my personality type and, you know, that sort of thing, it's actually a little bit more agreeable. And maybe this is a total placebo thing, but I also feel like it's Gives that extra bit of wind protection because you're just kind of tucked in just a hair more and leaned forward just a bit more. Okay. So when you're on the freeway, you're not taking it to the chest as badly as you would on the more upright MTO9s um, and a lot of naked bikes for that matter.
0: Interesting. Okay. Is it a little roomier, you know, for the legs or, or anything like that? Or, or is it literally exactly the same, just a slightly different angle of riding position?
1: Yeah, I would say it's again pretty relative.
0: Um, sure, and um, it's gonna be—we're talking tiny increments, I'm sure. But yeah, yeah, you know, it's
1: it's, you know, again, all of these these different parameters. The the handlebars are adjustable um, on the MT lines right. and the XSRs, and the the foot pegs and uh, rear sets are adjustable slightly as well. So you can oh, okay. kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. Okay. Um, whether you can take an XSR and put it into MT-09 realms, not entirely sure, but that does seem <laughs> plausible. Um, right. So, you know, it, again, moving the foot pegs in relation to the seat height is just to kind of keep that proper comfy uh, peg to seat ratio. So you're not getting a lot of knee bend and, you know, in that regard, the bikes do feel relative, but you, you feel okay. a little bit more tucked in. Your, your riding position is slightly more canted forward than the MT-09s. And for that matter, the previous generation XSR as well. Um, but yeah, that's that's one of the distinguishing points against the, the MT-09 motorcycles when you're talking about the XSR. And that's before we even get into any of the suspension or handling or any of that stuff.
0: All right. Does it um, have any sort of niceties? You said it's got the same electronics. So it sounds as though it's probably got the same quick shifter layout and all that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, correct. So on the electronic front, it has all of the YZF R1 derived electronics. So we now have IMU supported electronics to that. And you have cornering ABS slide control, traction control, wheelie control, and a distinguishing point between the MT-09 and MT-09 SP is that this motorcycle comes with cruise control, which was exclusive to the SP model only, uh, the up-spec model. So in terms of pricing and features, the XSR900 actually splits the difference between the the standard base model MT-09 and the up-spec MT-09 SP. So the standard MT-09 is, off the top of my head, I believe everything went up about a hundred bucks this year. So I think it's 9,500. Yeah. 9,500. Okay. Um, this motorcycle is nine,
0: nine, nine, nine. So it's 500 bucks more. Is 10
1: grand. And then the MT-09 SP, I believe is eleven one or maybe eleven okay. two. two. Um, and the, to be clear, and we'll just kind of go through the ladder. You have the base model MT-09 SP great bike. You know everything's honky dory there. You have the XSR nine hundred, which comes with cruise control, and that's the extra bit that the standard MT09 does not have. Okay. And you know there are some additional changes to the XSR that we'll cover in a minute. Then the MT09 SP has the fully adjustable Olin's shock, and then an upgraded KYB fully adjustable fork as DLC coating on the uh, on the leg stanchions, and. Uh, you know, different uh, valving and, and things like that, just different internals. Uh, it's a, I would argue it's a, a stiffer, stiffer feeling motorcycle overall that is aimed at the more aggressive rider. And then it also has cruise control. So upgraded suspension and cruise control and a couple aesthetic bits and bobs for the SP and that makes up that $1,100 or so difference. Um, you know, that,
0: that's kind of how you break it down. Interesting. Okay, so actually, it sounds like it's priced really fairly. I mean, it's um, it's a nice addition to the range. So they're all sort of in a similar ballpark. You don't have to pay extortion amounts of money more. And by paying a little bit more, you get the sort of the retro cool looks, if that's your thing. Um, And you also get your cruise control, which totally justifies the extra 500 bucks. Yeah, I mean, the 500 bucks is
1: obviously covering the. The aesthetic choice, which, you know, if we're really going to hone in on that, the gold rims, all of the paint finishes, everything is just top notch across the board. The only sort of knock that I would have towards it is some of the plumbing and wiring in around the dash that can be cleaned up and, you know, with any sort of uh, style forward motorcycle, everything lives under that, that, um, that magnifying glass will say (laughs) it gets gets a little bit more uh, criticism in that regard, just because it is a stylish bike. So when things aren't totally nip tucked properly, they stand out. Right. Um, Right. And then the horn placement is just, if you look at it from the front, you just stare at this very utilitarian horn, which is kind of hilarious. But (laughs) um, It's just one of those things that it, That happens on a lot of production motorcycles. So, you know, that's just what happens. But overall, you look at the paint and everything looks great. Now, getting into the functionality of it and some of those other distinguishing points, we've already mentioned the racier riding position. The chassis is something that, you know, I'd like to get into um, and obviously it benefits from that new twin spar aluminum frame. According to Yamaha, it's 50% stiffer the swing arm itself is now mounted between the aluminum frame spars so it's actually mounted on the interior of those sections before on the fz uh 09 and then when it became the mt09 later in its uh, uh, updated versions um going into 2021 they achieved much more uh chassis rigidity one through the, the stiffer frame and then mounting that, that swing arm between those, those lateral, uh, spars. So it's now mounting on the inside again, that, that just increases chassis stiffness and makes the bike much more compliant as it's cornering and much more stable on the edge of the tire as well. Um, and that's something that we can really kind of look back at the original FCO nine and then it's second generation and those were some of the weak points of that motorcycle. And a lot of that went into the, the suspension setups that those bikes had, which was fixed on these third-generation MT-09s and the second-generation XSR900 that we're talking about here. Um, and so that ends the suspension. You have a fully adjustable KYB fork, um, and then you also have a semi-adjustable KYB shock, so preload and rebound adjustment only. And it has bespoke suspension settings. So the spring rates are increased, compression damping is increased as well, and rebound damping is actually softened up a hair between this motorcycle and the base model MT09. So the hard parts are the same, but the valving and spring rates are different. So, you know, that it does change the vibe uh, of the motorcycle. I, I feel that it makes it a bit more. Uh, Predictable, it stabilizes the chassis a bit more, and it just makes it more stable overall. So it's a little stiffer, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, not not to the degree that the SP is, but it's oh. again the bike in the middle, and that's sort of the theme with the XSR nine hundred, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But the the big takeaway here is the longer swing arm. So they looked at the Tracer nine GT and said, we need that. So they stole the longer swing arm off of that thing and put the sport touring swing arm on this guy. And that lengthens the wheelbase by a significant 2.6 inches. That's a, that's a wow, lot. That's a lot. long. That's, yeah. that's huge. So the MT-09s are sitting around the 56 inch mark overall, pretty standard for a naked sport bike. Definitely. And you see a lot of motorcycles in that realm, in that category. And with this one, we are looking at 58.9. So we're knocking on the door 59 inches. Wow. At any rate, what that does is it it definitely calms the motorcycle overall. I would never describe the XSR as a slow handling bike at all. Right. But what it does is it just takes that edge off that, uh, that sort of, you know, hyper agile motorcycle that the MT-09 can be. You're resisting saying twitchiness, aren't you? No, no, because the... The MT-09s aren't twitchy in my mind, but they're extremely playful. I would describe them as more okay. like Jack Russell right. barrier personality. Okay. If we're talking first gen FZ09 and then into the the updated, I believe the update came in 17, I, th- I think it was, when they updated the suspension for the the uh, FZ09 and then MT-09 as the name changed later. You know, the, the suspension just never matched the capability of the engine agree when it was still the 847 for sure just never it wasn't there it was too soft it was too spongy and you could blow through the stroke instantly by either grabbing the brakes or whacking on the throttle right. and it it just wasn't up to snuff and if you threw suspension at the bike it was absolutely amazing but the thing was also priced extremely affordably so upgrading the suspension was something that a lot of owners did. Yeah. And you know, if you were that type of guy or girl, and you're really still still coming in way under the 10 grand mark. So right, not, not that big of a deal, I guess. But this bike is a huge step ahead of that. And the
0: third generation mt 9 that this motorcycle is based off of is a huge step ahead of those as well. What we're talking about here is is the lengthened swing arm, which sounds as though it's pretty much almost three inches by the sound of it. Yeah, it's pretty close. It's near as damn it, three inches. Yeah. So that is going to have a significant effect on the stability. Yeah. And yes. the the you know the base MTO nine, the standard MTO nine is is not twitchy, but it's definitely a like you say a playful motorcycle that that is very very agile. Are you saying that this is less agile or it just feels, it's just as agile, but it just feels a little more stable? Yeah,
1: I mean, it, you, you do have to sacrifice some agility no matter what, by changing the geometry that much. Now, I, I think it's a good compromise here because with the MT-09s, they tip into corners aggressively, they're planted, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're kind of fun going motorcycles. You can lift the front end under acceleration with ease, You know, just have all sorts of fun in the canyons. That's what they're all about. And it fits the personality of the bike. Yeah. Now with this, it sort of we'll say classes up the joint a little bit. This is putting on the button-down shirt, you know, takes out some of the swear words from the vernacular and uh (laughs) you know runs a comb through its hair. Okay. And it's still got that that rowdiness to it, but it just backs it off a hair, and then gives you a load of stability. And that really translates to those hard acceleration stages during corner exit and also just at mid-corner as well. Sure. So with the looks of the motorcycle, the sort of racier retro vibe that they're achieving here, I would say it really complements that visual aesthetic that they've achieved. And then also the riding experience as well. I think those two things really start to match up.
0: Wow. That's awesome.
1: You know, especially when you're, you know, breaking into corners and things like that. I, I would say it's, it's stability and composure when dealing with, you know, heavier, heavier compression bumps and things like that, you know, at the apex of your, your corner, it really translates well on this motorcycle. Um, you know, on the suspension front, the only thing that I would want is probably a little bit more compression in the shock. Um, I played with the fork, just a hair, just beyond the the stock settings. And, you know, now that we've kept the bike and we're, we're doing some more stuff with it, I really haven't deviated too much, but with a shock, I added some preload and it can work as a good band aid for now, but compression damping is the only thing that we can't adjust on that shock. So you know, a turn or two of preload depending on your weight. Okay. Riding style and desires, of course. So I sit at about 180 pounds, give or take. I actually have no
0: idea what I weigh right now. I think that's what I weighed the last time. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. Let's call it 180. I mean, far from me to tell you that you're like 200. We call it one. Yeah. (laughs) We're in there. Okay. 180 ish. You know, if you
1: keep a faster pace, you may want some you know, some, some more compression damping, if you're lighter and a little bit, uh, you know, more conservative with the throttle, you may want something a a little bit, um, uh, softer. So again, suspension is always a a personal thing. And I I want to give people context, if that makes sense. So yeah, from my end, I'd appreciate a little bit more compression damping, but it's not a huge, a huge deal anyway. Again, it's a street motorcycle. Interestingly, because of its chassis characteristics, I really want to take this thing on the racetrack. (laughs) Okay. I'm not sure if Yamaha
0: entirely knew what they were doing when they released this into the wild, they didn't know that they would attract So in other words, this extra stability is really attractive in like sort of faster corners. So you've still got the agility other than on the absolute tightest, craziest Canyon, which really you don't find too much on racetracks. But the sort of the more sort of uh, faster speeds of a racetrack, you think that the, the stability on this would really um, complement it?
1: Oh, I think that could translate quite well. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, so that, that that's definitely a, a good way to put it. You know, the, the higher speed stuff this bike loved, you know, not that the MT9s didn't either. It's just, right. you know, this thing really, really shines it. In that in that regard what tires was it running so it uses the Bridgestone battleaxe hypersport s22 tires okay it's an excellent sport tire yeah I would say you know it's playing in that category with the we'll say q3 plus uh, from Dunlop the Pirelli super Corsa SP this is a very aggressive sporting tire that is track capable but you know it, it's a road oriented tire Um, but it's at the the top tier of their
0: street oriented sport tires that can still go and rip a track day. No problem. Awesome. So further to that, the braking, I take it is, is identical to the MT-09.
1: Yeah. So the brakes are actually the only kind of old bit on this bike. Uh, So they go back a few years. We still have the 298 mil discs up front and the Advics four piston calipers in the front the update for the xsr is that it gets a brembo master cylinder radial master cylinder i should note as well uh so it it definitely gets that extra little you know classiness to it to
0: fit its its uh xsr looks it is the same braking specifications as the standard mt09 yeah
1: yeah pretty much the the standard mt09 uses a different master cylinder um but More or less, the the feel and braking power is relative across the board. I would say that you might get that extra sniff of feel and and just sort of braking bite with the XSR, but Yamaha's still really positioning and working on the braking feel of this bike to make it a very friendly, street-going motorcycle. So the brakes don't have this harsh attack that a fully track oriented super sport might have. And I would say they've sort of split the difference between a sort of overly friendly and soft approach with a brake bite and then a harsh, you know, aggressive attacking uh, initial bite that a super sport will have. And that, you know, that's necessary for hard riding on the racetrack. In this case, sort of splits the difference. Personally, I'd like a little bit more, more attack, there is that sort of hint of sponginess in the lever, but again, you gotta think about its application, where the bike is gonna be riding and it still uses rubber brake lines as well. So we could we could blame some of that sponginess on the rubber brake lines. You know, If someone wanted to upgrade, this is an ABS uh, only model. So you're not just putting on brake lines from the master cylinder to the caliper. You have to deal with all the plumbing that lies within
0: Definitely a doable job no matter what, but it takes a little bit more doing. Okay. But essentially you liked, you like the brakes. I mean, obviously, so there's nothing to complain about there. Yeah. They're, they're, it, yeah, no big deal. Either. The motor, you were going to make comments on the motor and the electronics, I think?
1: Yeah. So the, the motor was updated for the third generation MC09, went from 847cc to 890. By and large, it's an all new engine. So new crank, new cams, uh, new New heads, new intake, new forged pistons. And, uh, you know, really, when you boil it all down, yes, that sounds like a new motor. For my money, what I would attribute some of its change in personality compared to the prior generation is that they added 15% inertia to the crank. So essentially, they made the crank heavier. It doesn't rev up as aggressively as before. It's not this sort of snarling, free revving beast. It's still. It, it still has that personality, some of that punk rock attitude, we'll say, but it's calmed down a bit. It's sort of taken a bit of, you know, a couple music theory classes, learned a little bit more, expanded its repertoire. <laughs> and okay. it, it pulls a lot more aggressively than the, the, the prior uh, engine for sure. And Yamaha doesn't claim peak numbers or peak performance numbers in the United States but they do cite that it gets a 6% boost in torque overall. I would probably agree with that based on the, the butt dyno. And, um, you know, I'd say you're probably in that, if I just had to throw a number out there in that 112, 115 range, when you're really boiling it down, uh, horsepower range, but overall, um, I would say it's a more well-rounded engine. It has a broader mid range that, Again, doesn't spin up as fast as before, but that actually makes it a bit more friendly and easier to use. Oh. It also has that top end rush that goes on a lot longer. Right. And the bottom end, perhaps not as strong because it's not geared as low as the previous generations as well. So that's the main gearbox change. Okay. And so that could throw, out, throw it off a hair. So that initial hit off the line comes in nice and smooth and then kind of progressively builds into this broad, just super strong mid range that pulls all the way out. And then as you start kind of getting to the, the red line, then it starts tapering off nicely. But I would just say that this, this engine has, has grown up a bit and I think it's all the right. better for it. It's far smoother in every regard. Um, throttle mapping is radically improved and we'll get that to that in just a second and then when we move down into the gearbox they've lengthened gears first and uh first and second gear and that's really sort of chilled it out on the bottom and helped that you know it's low speed mannerisms
0: so you were going to get into um the throttle mapping
1: yeah so with the electronics you know it has the the same thing as the empty knives so as we mentioned before you have four throttle maps, slide control, uh, traction control, wheelie control, uh, and of course, cruise control. And two, two mode ABS or cornering ABS as well, as well. Now, throttle maps, that's a big improvement over the FZ into the MT uh, prior generation and the prior generation XSR 900. If you guys remember, you know the, the first gen FZ, is super snatchy throttle mode in the most aggressive setting, and they used a different uh descriptor as well i think it was a standard and b if i'm recalling it yes i think so and, and a was sharp to the point of and this is being kind i'll say it was sharp to the point of uselessness <laughs> standard was the best you're gonna get it was much more approachable but it did curb power just slightly if i remember correctly perhaps, perhaps not Peak power, yeah. but it definitely changed the power curve just a little bit. And then B actually did cut power. And uh, often I would think that was the most usable mode. Um, this goes back a number of years. So some of the throttle mapping going into ride-by-wire and, and things like that was a struggle for certain brands. And you know, anyway, the most aggressive mode is one, uh, as you might, might might guess, it's a bit sharp, but not to the point of snatchiness. It's that aggressive mode. If you were going to be in the canyons, really getting after it as you do, or if you were to go in for the, you know, the, the cheeky track day, that's <laughs> the mode I would use. And it's not over the top. Again, yeah. thinking back to the first gen uh, FZ and MTs and the second gen FZ and MTs and XSR, nothing like that. Right. At all. Okay. It's just a very aggressive mode. So you have to be in in the right mental state and uh, personality type to to extract it level two kind of just curbs that a little bit definitely softens that initial hit of throttle right kind of uh just gives you a nice little smooth transition into it right and it's still they still reach the same peak power level three definitely blunts the mid-range definitely calms things down quite a bit again it still reaches that same uh peak power it just kind of gets to it in a, in a different way level four is your rain mode cuts power right. uh, significantly and uh you know if you're in bad weather it's going to be useful if you're in the dry you you'll be a little confused <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it, it's it's a rain mode and those things are useful when you're right stuck in wet weather so it's doing its job as intended now with everything else that we've talked about the electronics are more simplified it's a street motorcycle after all it doesn't need the you know many levels that the r1 has in terms of tc and slide control and wheelie control yada 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 right so you basically have three modes across the board for for everything except abs and in the the third mode is basically reserved for rain essentially and uh level two a bit more conservative definitely keeps things you know, tight and tidy across the board. So, you know, not too crazy. Level one right. really lets you stretch the leash out and definitely start having some fun. And of course you can you can turn everything off except for ABS. Um, should you really want to go full hooligan mode? But even in level one, if you get on the gas aggressively, you can do a nice little front end hover, probably I'd say maybe a foot off the ground or so. So just enough to kind of, Established dominance on the <laughs> pack. That's, uh, you know, if you really want to go full hooligan mode and, right. and do it up true MTO 9 and XSR style, then, you know, turn off wheelie control and, and you can hoist it up with no problem under under power. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. And that's sort of the thing that that does relate to the chassis again. I, I would say it's not as wheelie happy as before. Again, that longer wheelie base or wheelbase <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's not as eager to lift the front end. Again, talking about that stability that we mentioned. But the electronics package is definitely something that is a huge value on the MT9s and the XSR. And with that, you get the up-down quick shifter, which works incredibly well. Right. So overall, it's it's just a very tight and tidy package, like I mentioned before. Yeah. For a
0: dollar less than 10 grand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: The only thing to mention about the ABS is if you do keep it in level two, which maintains um, the cornering function, it can get a little bit aggressive in terms of its uh, ability to trigger ABS. But the thing to note is that even if you do start trail braking aggressively and, you know, doing that at higher lean angles and you do activate ABS, it's not entirely curbing braking power. So, okay you know, some think back to earlier ABS systems on motorcycles and, you know, the early 2000s and things like that, when they trigger, it was pretty abrupt and could definitely sap all of your braking performance. And I shouldn't say all a significant margin could be a bit sketchy at, at times. Definitely. Now the, the first gen MTs and FCs, whatever way you want to arrange them, didn't entirely suffer from that, but they also used a far more rudimentary uh, electronics package wheel speed sensors only and predetermined settings. So this is far more intelligent. And as you're braking aggressively, I'd be totally comfortable with this thing triggering at at higher lean angles. Again, I don't think unless I was really pushing on a racetrack or something like that, I would switch to level one, which does eliminate The cornering function and give you that extra sniff of braking potential at higher lean angles. And, um, interesting, you know, that's one of the ways that manufacturers are allowing you to still get optimal braking performance and adhere to Euro 5 standards, which state that ABS cannot be uh, disabled. Which, if you think to prior or motorcycles made prior to Euro 5, typically on the high performance oriented motorcycles, you were able to disable ABS for racetrack applications. Yeah, so that, that's how they're getting around it now.
0: Okay, well, it sounds as though overall, I mean, the, there's a lot more to the XSR than just the sort of the retro looks and, and, and so on. It does sound like a different flavor of, of the 09 um, range in terms of riding experience as well.
1: Yeah, again, you know, remember it's it is relative, but it's the more stylish cousin, we'll say, um, and yeah, it's only five hundred dollars more. So if you are of that mindset where you you want style and performance in equal measure, then the XSR nine hundred is something that's going to be appealing to you, and you can rest assured that it's built upon a proven sport platform that, in my opinion, is. One of the best bangs for the buck uh in the marketplace as of now so you know the xsr is definitely you know, without going over the top you know quite a good hit hit at bat for yamaha
0: it is the distinguished gentleman of the 900 yamaha range oh for sure okay. absolutely all right absolutely terrific well thank you uh i've enjoyed hearing about uh your impressions i appreciate your your thoughts yeah In the second segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey talks with a true racing icon, Mr Daytona himself, Scott Russell. This is actually part one of two, where Scott takes us from his humble beginnings on the back roads of Georgia and the start of his racing career through to the massive crash at Daytona that ended that chapter of his life a notorious bad boy off track, as well as shockingly naturally talented on track, Scott's raw telling in his signature Southern drawl of how things unfolded for him is an absolute must listen. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. 2022 is the 100th anniversary of shoe helmets, head protection technology made in Germany. The DOT version of the new C5 launches this June and it offers a revised fit with customizable inner pads for comfort, increased ventilation with a new chin air intake and rear exhaust spoiler, increased safety with a new EPS material and anti-roll-off system, and a locking mechanism to hold the chin bar open. It's also pre-wired for the new SC2 communication system offering mesh by Senna. Learn more about the all new features at shoebirth.com. The new shoebirth C5 Endless Evolution. The YZFR7 bridges the gap between the entry level YZFR3 and the prestigious YZFR1, offering a mid level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZFR7 Provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZFR7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favourite canyon curves. Take a closer look at Yamaha or see the YZFR7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours
2: tell us a bit about mom and dad and uh, your sisters growing up what was life
3: like around the time you were riding dirt bikes well um where i think we were a middle-class family you know my father worked was at delta he started working at delta in 64 the year i was born and uh you know, so we, we we lived here close to the airport in Atlanta, and at, at one point, you know, there was a point in life where every one of the family members had a motorcycle. It was crazy. So, uh, my dad had the, uh, it was the XL 250 Honda, and my mom had the XL 125, I had the 100, and down the line, my two sisters had little 50s. So, we were kind of a riding family, let's say, didn't do a lot of riding from what I can remember in those days, but I was always wanting to be on my motorcycle from the age of five, once I was introduced to it. Um, but yeah, so we, uh, we lived a normal life and uh, everything was good. Was mama a homemaker
2: or was mama she? Mama
3: was a home for a while, but then she ended up with the, having, she went to work as well, so Um, She worked for the Civil Defense Department in our local county. And, uh, you know, we were as normal as I think we could get as a family, you know. So I was lucky to have, you know, that and, and then have my dad introduce me to motorcycles at a young age.
2: But you actually started racing dirt bikes at 10 years old, right? You went into the race series. But by 13, you'd sort of come out of it was it it didn't bite you at that point
3: weirdly enough um not hard enough it didn't bite hard enough so at 10 years old we're you know i've been riding since i was five 10 years old my cousins as well two cousins tommy and chris and uh we're all the same age so we had that in common you know we did a lot of riding and then we just, we got into racing our dad's got us into racing we had a great bunch of motocross tracks all around Georgia here, so we were kids, so we were running the junior junior mini class, and then uh, that was at 10 years old, and, and by 13 years old, I'd moved up to senior mini class, and we were winning motocross races, it was the same then, we weren't like dominant, but we were winning, and um, all three of us were fast, so it was kind of cool, and somewhere along the line, my dad's like, you want to keep doing this, and I was just like, not really. It doesn't matter to me. It didn't didn't bite me like I said. Um, like like the next time I started riding motorcycles mm. in life, let's say. So I'm scratching my head on that one a little bit because I think looking looking back at the the way things went for me, I could have maybe been a motocross star. You know who knows? But you just don't know. And at thirteen, does any thirteen year old know what he wants to do in life or really have an idea? I don't know. So I was, it was easy come, easy go. And then, uh, you know, so fast forward to the age of 19, you know, and I was just going to school, hanging out with my buddies after school. We rode a lot of bicycles and we were always out, you know, jumping stuff, building ramps. You know what kids do. And, uh, and so we loved two wheels, but we just weren't riding that much motorcycle, that many motorcycles again. So, and then uh, at age 19, I discovered street bikes. I had uh, quit high school, and my dad's like, well, <laughs> you're going to have to go to work, you know. So I found a job at a local trash bag factory. It sits out by the airport, and, uh, you know, it was uh, it was hard work, man. It was factory work, you know, in the heat, working on an assembly line, 12-hour shifts, three on, three off. For three and a half years, I did that and worked my way up to assistant foreman. So I was doing pretty good in that job and we were partying a lot. There was a lot of partying going on in my teenage years. I I, I gotta add that in. I mean, it was, it wasn't, I wasn't the perfect kid by no means, you know. I, I mean, who was? Yeah, and I got into smoking and doing other things at a young age. And, and that kind of carried through a lot of my life, you know, so but that's where it all started. And but I enjoyed the work as hard as it was. And I, I discovered motorcycles at 19 years old, sold my Volkswagen Bug, actually traded it to a buddy of mine for a Kawasaki LTD 440. And that, you was know, was that a up, belt drive? No, it, it, was chain, yeah. it was chain, it was chain, oh, it was a cruiser style, one. yeah, yeah, and uh, upright, at like funky bars on it. Um, It was not sporty at all. And it just opened my eyes to a whole new way of riding, you know? And I rode that bike for one year, and then I stepped it up to the 1984 Kawasaki GPZ 750. So you didn't have a car that period? No.
2: You were just on your bike
3: every day? Every day, you know, I was going to work three days on, three days off, and then every other day I was in the road going to my buddy's house or whatever. And I realized about the time I got the GPZ, the 750, about a year after street riding the other bike, um, that I graduated to the next level. I had a real sport bike now. And, and it turned out I was pretty good at it. Everything just felt natural. Cornering and I could wheelie the thing for a mile, you know, and just was doing stuff that I didn't know I could do. On the thing, and it where were you
2: figuring that out? TV videos, magazines, or were you just coming up with
3: it At the time, I think that was about the time me and my buddy Paul Bray, we started racing together. um I quit the bag company. I went to work for them at the pipeline company, running a front end loader, and his dad was cool enough to uh to let us off on Fridays. We start, first, I, I got ahead of myself a little bit. So, so you're on the GPZ and you're doing all this cool stuff, but what was, it, what
2: was your influence?
3: Well, um, we were going to bike week. We started going to bike week. I think my uh, first bike week was 1984. And that was the year I had got my new, G- new Cowie. And, uh, and we were like, wow, bike week, this is great. You know, and we're street geeks riding around, just doing the things you do at bike week and going, loving the racing. And- uh, Who was racing that year? Golly, 84, Letty Lawson. Was Eddie, did Eddie win it in 84 on his 750 Yamaha? No, he won it in 86 on that bike. Yeah, yeah he was 84 was Merkel. Merkel on the Honda. I can't remember who won the 200 that year. Mm. Didn't matter, I was loving it, I was hooked. But the next year is what really hooked me in 85. And by that time we discovered Duke Videos and they were great you know we watched the gp guys L- roberts and spencer and lawson and, and mm-hmm. momola and we would literally watch a race we'd walk outside we'd get on our two me and paul he had a gs 750 Suzuki, and i had the gpz Cowie, and we would go find a uh section of corners on the backcountry road and and I would sit, and I would watch, watch him, and he would come through the corners, and then we'd just go back and forth, and he'd watch me, and we were trying to get our knee down, but we were trying to really emulate what we just saw on the Duke video on the backcountry road, nobody around, it was just us, but you know, back then, you, you were able to do things like that out on the street, and, and that just kept snowballing, I mean, that was something we really loved to do, we loved to to watch those videos and we really got into the racing part of it and didn't know a thing about it, just what we were watching on TV and then what we could pull off on our own bikes out in the back country, you know, so that's where it started. That's where it started and then the next year Daytona Bike Week rolls around it's 1985 and we go down there and there's a guy, a kid named Freddie Spencer and you know we knew know him from the, G, the duke videos but i would never seen this in person him in person racing and we were at bike week and i'm sitting in the grandstands up on the outside of turn one up on the high side great spot you can see most of the track and uh and freddie proceeded to just wear everybody out and he he won the 250 class he won the 500 class there and i think that was the first year they brought super bikes into play at Daytona, and the super bike was the Premier 200, and he just, granted, now his bike was way faster than anybody else, as you could clearly see it on the bank, even a guy didn't know what he was doing me, I could pick that out, so Freddie ended up, he had trouble, I remember, in the race, and had to pit for something, and he got back out, and he just reeled in West Cooley, and the rest of those guys, and just won the race, so that really got me looking at him hard, and <clears throat> yeah, so I continued to follow his career at that point, and he was kind of like my hero, you know, this guy I looked up to, like, I I like what this guy's doing, and so that snowballed into, you know, um, we were at Road Atlanta the, later that year, watching the Superbike race, came to Atlanta, and we're standing on the fence, and we had been partying all, all weekend, we came across these guys, and Was that the acid trip? We were doing some acid, and we were just, (laughs) I mean, it was like, I don't know, out of body experience. We were standing on the (laughs) fence off the back straightaway, and I remember a guy named Mike Harth come flying by on this Yamaha with all the yellow and black, the Yamaha livery from way back, and I thought, yeah, we can do this. It just hit me. We looked at each other. as as messed up as we were, <laughs> we're like, <laughs> we can do this, you know. And that, we decided that day that we were going to give this a go. So we went through the motions of acquiring leathers, helmet, all the right gear that you need for the racetrack because we were street riders. And once we got all our stuff set, we uh, we went to the Ed Bargy Racing School at Talladega, Little Talladega. What did you ride for that? I rode my, uh, by then... I can't remember. I wrote, yeah. By then, I had acquired a Ninja Six Hundred, a nineteen eighty five Ninja Six Hundred. Yep. So yeah. I go through the rider. Oh, those school. things had sixteen inch wheels. Sixteen front and back. Yeah. They had this neat little growl to the motor. Yeah, yeah, it just, yeah, yeah. It was the coolest thing ever. Because the seven fifty I'd come off of was a little bit big, and then to to come back down to the six the six hundred. It just felt way more nimble and just definitely less power, but just, man, it was the bike to be on at the time. There wasn't anything better, I don't think, at the time. So, yeah, do the rider school race. I mean, do the rider school with Ed bargain, and then the following day they'll let you do a little uh, race and ended up finishing second right away to a kid. He was on a, a Ninja 1000 at the time. So... That was like, okay, we're doing it now. We know what it's like. We've been on a racetrack now. And all I wanted was more of that, that feeling of uh, going fast, knee on the ground. I mean, there was nothing like it. It was the best thing in the world at the time. And, yeah, so um, after seeing how well I did in that uh, rider school race, I thought, I already knew I was going to race, you know, I'm coming back. But it wasn't until the next year until I really got all my ducks in a row. And I came back. I started in 1986 as a novice. Entered three classes that first weekend at Talladega and won two and got second in the other one to my buddy Paul. And he was second to me in the ones that I won. And so we, we arrived that day. We came on the scene that day, really. And then people were like, because we had two bikes painted up just like, you know, we had the light blue bike with the white stripe in the middle and had the van. We had Paul's van painted up just like the bikes. Um, we did it right, right out of the gate. We're novices, you know, and we showed up looking like that because we had watched enough stuff on TV and got <laughs> enough ideas of what we wanted to do. And, um, yeah, it was, it was great. It was great. So we started winning right away, both of us. And uh, we really just took over the southeast at that point. And we finished that season out as novice riders. And then the following year, 1987, you're allowed to step it up to expert class. And just so happened, perfect timing, that Suzuki came on board. I, I think they'd started this jiu G- XR program in 1985. So it was in play. The year I went through my rider school, and then the following year in 86, it was in play and then in 87 I went expert and then I had my grandmother bought me a Gixxer 750 and a good friend of mine was worked at a local motorcycle shop he financed the 600 and the uh... actually it was just the one eleven hundred 1100 at, at that time the 600 wasn't out yet so we ran around the country with the 750 and a thousand and just the good thing about the Suzuki cut was in every region, every weekend, there was money being paid, you know, somewhere.
2: Quick introduction. You, that was a Bob Starr program, right?
3: I think Bob had a lot to do with mm. that.
2: Because I didn't realize he was with Suzuki before Yamaha. He's been yeah. with Yamaha so long.
3: Yeah, he's an awesome guy. And whether he had a lot, you know, he made it happen or had a lot to do with it, it was a great program. And it's everything. interesting,
2: later in these interviews, we'll come back to Bob Starr and another big movie made in your life. It's interesting how he's been... In because if that program didn't exist, you wouldn't have gone the route you took.
3: Exactly. Yeah. I would have <laughs> raced until I couldn't afford it anymore, and then I'd have been done. You know. But thank God for the Suzuki program because now, as an amateur, you can make a living doing it. And the best guy I ever doing that was Doug Poland. Doug Poland came on the scene. He'd already raced. You know, and he's a guy I learned a lot from too because he was just so good, so fast, so smooth. And he had already established himself as the guy to beat at the club level all over the country. He and his brother were running around doing the Suzuki Cup thing right away. But he back up to the 79, I think he was rookie of the year at Daytona 200 in 1979. So he had already had his hand in racing and was pretty good at it. But then because there was no money in it, I think he went away from it. And then when this money thing came by, he thought, Saw dollar signs, and boy, he cashed in, just like the rest of us. And and that allowed guys like us to run around the country to different tracks, different different regions if we wanted. Um, being in Georgia was just a great location because the southeast, it turned out to be the hotbed of competition. And, I mean, within a day's drive, I could be in Michigan, or I could be in Texas, or South Florida, wherever I had to go to make money, you know, and we, they had such a big series going. I mean, we mapped it out. We could make money every weekend somewhere. But there was
2: two things really important happened at this point. One, you quit your job. And two, you got
3: a tire sponsor. True that. I missed a little bit there, didn't I? Yeah. So along the way, I got hooked up with a shop, local shop called Cycle Mart. <laughs> and uh, they were local here near where I live. And so in 1987, they offered Miss Pod on their endurance team, on uh, the national endurance team, which ran six hours, twelve hours, and one twenty-four hour event. So there were a lot of, uh, lot of racing going on in that in, the, in my early years. So eighty-seven, I signed on to race with them, and they were the Dunlop tire distributor, and so that bled over into my personal racing. You know, my my Suzuki Cup stuff, and they sponsored me with tires. And Then so so on a weekend on Saturday, I'd race the six-hour endurance race and then Sunday I'd sprint and make money and they sponsored me with tires and uh, It was a it was a good run Um, Because your buddy was working on the bikes right my buddy was working on the Suzuki's Mm. and then Ronnie Bowen and Cindy Bowen who owned the shop they took care of the uh, Yamaha that we were racing in the endurance series so, so that
2: was what so you see it was giving you a lot of track time that you wouldn't have been getting in sprint
3: races it was giving me mean, a lot of track time but i and also had help you know i mean having a guy help work on the bikes and having them prepare everything so it was almost like i was a factory rider right out of the gate because all i had to do is show up and focus on what i needed to do i didn't have to worry about making sure the bike's right i had people doing all that so that went really well for me and and allowed me to get hours on the track instead of a five or six, seven, eight lap sprint race, you know, every weekend. You're trying to hone your skills and it, it's over before you get started. So the, the endurance stuff really put me on track for hours at a time and my M.O. was to just pass as many people as I could. So I, I treated every hour like an hour-long sprint race. So I was running around there faster most people could imagining it at such a early early point in my career, I just kept getting faster and faster and faster, you know, really quick. So that was a that was a huge help in eighty seven and eighty eight to have those that endurance thing going. And uh and then you had the
2: money from the Suzuki Cup on the weekends. I
3: had the money coming in the Suzuki Cup. So and that was your
2: decision at that point then, just to quit your job and chase Suzuki money. That's
3: right, middle of 87, I decided that I'm not going to work anymore. And it was a hard decision. <coughs> it was like, you know, but you know, I was young and I didn't have a direction in life. I didn't finish high school, didn't have a college degree. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just winging it. And racing was was it for me. I knew then, you know, they're they're paying money. And as soon as I won the first check, Won my first race at Pocono. It was, that was it, you know. I just wanted more and more of that that feeling and more of that money. So, yeah, I mean, I was lucky to get hooked up with the right group of people early. And uh, John Ulrich was a huge part of our helping us in, in those Suzuki Cup days as well. He had put together a program for myself, Jamie James, Mike Hearth, Mike Smith and and one other rider and Suzuki gave us bikes the next year so we had free bikes coming from Suzuki thanks to John Ulrich and again we were off to the races again so um then it starts you know just building and just getting better and winning more races making more money and, and uh 1988 I ended up winning the Suzuki cup finals they take all the guys all over the country race all year, and then the Suzuki finals are here at my home track in Atlanta. Oh, it's perfect, huh? Oh yeah. So I ended up winning the the, the 750 Supersport class that year, and and then Yoshimura reached out, Yosh Suzuki, and and then we started working on a deal for '89, 1989.
2: But you had to pay into that deal initially. I did,
3: you know, I mean, you hear about riders paying for their rides and they're doing it now, you know, probably still. But back then, you know, I didn't know anything about that. So they wanted five, uh, they uh, offered me the deal, but I had to pay them five grand up front. And they took 40 percent of the prize money at every race. But the way I looked at it, it's it's an investment in the future because this is the best bike on the grid in the Superbike class. This is how I can get on it. So I was like, let's do it. Basically took the five grand I just won at Suzuki Cup and gave it to them. <laughs> but that was that was okay. And uh, So
2: eighty nine was the first year then on the superbike in AMA superbike. That's right. Yeah. No,
3: eighty eight. I I missed all of eighty eight, I'm sorry, Did so eighty eight I went pro and in the midst of doing endurance racing, club racing on the weekends, I had another group of guys um woody kyle and john roberts working on a suzuki GSX-R G- 750 on a Superbike program so i had all three of these different series i'm you didn't run the in. whole season though you just i did oh you did we traveled all over the country running the whole pro and uh it turns out we had Cosman build a set of triple clamps for the bike and somehow some way they built it to the wrong dimension so They had a real steep angle on the bike. It wasn't the stock angle that the bike had and the thing handled like a piece of shit. We fought that thing all year long and nobody, somebody finally figured it out in the end that it was the triple clamps is why the thing wouldn't handle. It was all weirded out, but I ended up winning rookie of the year that year in the AMI Pro and uh, I ended up winning my first national um super sport race at road atlanta in my own try i beat doug poland that year at the pro race so that was a good year finished ninth in the series rookie of the year learned a lot a lot of track time because i'm racing three different series and then here comes the suzuki cup finals win it and then move headed to Yoshimura. now after paying them five grand made a deal with them
2: went into 89 as a Yoshimura factory, right? Yeah. Know.
3: Superbike and Supersport or just Superbike? Superbike year? and Supersport 750. Because in those days, everyone was running both. Mm-hmm. I did both. Jamie James was my teammate. He did both. So we had a good little team going yeah, there. Yeah, so, I
2: mean, so Jamie won the Superbike in 89, right? Yeah.
3: Did you fin- Where did you finish to him? Second. That? second like two. four points behind him or oh. something. Um, but that season started out rough at Daytona um we get down there and I qualified second to Doug Poland. Doug was on our team as well he was a he was racing in Japan he had taken on a deal to race Formula One series and the 400 class in Japan and he went over there and won both championships I want to say but he came back to Daytona and he set the pole and I'm on the start I'm on second row I'm in second grid spot and I stalled the bike and a guy named Mark Bogus from New Hampshire or Boston area hit me from behind and it it hurt him. He went over the handlebars and the bike landed, pulled, pulverized him in the back. It just knocked the bike out from under me luckily enough. And I'm surfing the top of the motorcycle as it's sliding down the start straight. So. You know, fast forward to the end of my career when I stalled the bike. This ain't the first time. Right, I was going to say, this is and a in, deja vu. Or I know. Weird, right? And so we get the bike going again, and it damaged the chain adjuster a little bit, mm-hmm. and the guys missed it. So we restart the race. I'm in second. Poland's starting to pull away a little bit. I'm pulling away from Jamie in third or whoever it was. I, I'm like, I can do this. This is going well. And the chain came off. Up on the banking. So I put it back on, got things going again and it came off again. So that's kinda how that race started and went down. I don't even remember if I finished the race. But um I don't know if I remember a lot about that year either. Um I had a pretty good go at it.
2: Um I mean second I mean, right behind Jamie, that's not, not a bad year. As a
3: whole, you know what I mean, but Throughout the year, I had some, a hiccup, broke a collarbone on, on Friday at, at uh, Loudon. Yep. And ended up riding the next day or Sunday and finishing second or third in the Superbike race. So I had some really good rides in that, that season. Um, I won my first pro Superbike race that year at my home track at Road Atlanta. So that was a great weekend. And then we went to Elkhart Lake and uh, I was leading the race, me and Jamie, by a mile. Got him Rich Arnaz on a... I'm a Rich Arnaz, yeah. Rich on a Yamaha. Yep. I think he passed away not long ago. Anyway, um, we're miles ahead of Rich. You know, we got two factory bikes. We're rolling. Last lap, last lap or two, we came down into turn five, which is off the Andretti straightaway into this 90-degree left. And all of a sudden, my bike's sideways, and Jamie is in my ass. He done run into the back of me in the braking's on. If I could turn me completely sideways, both of us fucking hit the deck. Motorcycles are flying through the air. A one and two guaranteed finish ended up being nothing. <laughs> and I felt like I was going to win that race that day, so my eyes... That was 20 points. He would have got 16. Yeah. Fast forward to the end of the season, I would have been the champion. And uh, it didn't work out that way. But, I mean, we're and it was just classic, you know. I can remember, and there's a great picture somewhere of, uh, of me and him. And I've already taken my helmet off. And I'm looking, and I've, we're having a conversation about what the fuck just happened. And Sadowski's in the middle of us <laughs> because he had already, his bike had already broke, his Vance and Hines bike, and he's on He disappears in turn five, and you got all these fans in the background, and me and Jamie looking at each other like I'm looking at him like, "What the? Why?" And Sadowski's kind of like mediating the thing. (laughs) It was just like the picture said a thousand words. It was a cool deal. But when me and Jamie remained friends, we were real good buddies, and uh, we just we put that behind us and went on about our business. And in the end, he ended up winning the championship, which now look back makes me happy because that was his championship I don't know that he won any of it no Superbike he's runner up four times he's won the super championship no he's runner up four times right That's so yeah. um good for him you yeah, know it was cool and he was my buddy and and uh, we were we pushed each other to be better and we had good times at all these races and uh it was just a great life I mean here we are both it was our first factory ride you know and we we're just taking it all in and life was great so we get to the end of that season he wins it I in second I can't remember about the super sport results I can't remember where we ended up but um so not, my Muzzy called I had a two-year deal with the they were actually gonna pay me the second year imagine that 35 grand instead of me paying them five um, so I was like okay cool this is good you know um, Muzzy called and at the end of I remember now at the end of 89 This thing, the ZX7 and Doug Chandler and Rob Muzzy were starting to come on strong. It took them a year, throughout the year, time to get that thing going where the Yush bike was developed. I mean, it was just a badass. So they start coming on strong at the end of the Chandler started winning races, winning a couple in a row, I forget how many. He was, turned out that he was the guy to beat, but we'd already had enough points accumulated where Jamie wins it, and I was second. So the phone rings. Then it's Rob Muzzy. He said, Hey, what are you doing next year? And I said, Well, I'm set to ride with these guys again, you know. And he said, You want to come ride the Cowie, you know? And I could see the writing on the wall. I could see the bike was better than the Suzuki already. And just getting better by the weekend. Every week. Yes, I'm here. Nicely enough. Let me out of the contract. Just as free as I wanted to be. And uh, and so I made that move over to to the to the Cowey team in 1990, it was a three-man team. It was myself, Doug Chandler, and John Ashmead. And I was able to bring my mechanic with me, Vic Fasola, here from Georgia. We'd been working together now for a few years. Um, John Ashmead had his guys, Gary Medley, who was with him all those years oh, previous. Yeah. And then uh, Doug had Merlin Plumley, who was such an awesome dude. Um, and then they were the ones to beat in the team. I mean, they were hands down, Doug was better. At the time, and and we went along through that year, and I'm learning. And Daytona didn't go well. We had McCooney flat slide carbs on the thing or something. The fucking thing wouldn't even shut off going into turn one. I had to manually shut the throttle off. So we were struggling at Daytona, in the first first race of the year. But obviously the bike was under development all the time, right? And the Muzzy never stopped. You know those guys. They were working hard at the shop, and. Then we started to hit our stride, you know, and I I can't remember how it all went race by race. Probably should have refreshed my memory before we started talking about this and looked at some results. But nevertheless, I was dominating the super sport class, 750, and uh, and Chandler was in that class. So I was beating him in that class, but he was beating me on the super bike. So I'm thinking, why am I not running with him on the super bike? In the end, well, we... uh, we did the Miami race through the streets of Miami. I mean, it was the crazy shit we used to do back then, right? Racing through the streets with barricades and chain-link fences and manhole covers. This was the AMA back then. John asked me, crashed, and he hurt himself. And the next race was mid-Ohio, so he was broken ribs or whatever, couldn't race. So I rolled out in the first practice of the weekend at mid-Ohio, and I think it was a turning point for me and my whole career, it was like, I was coming off the front straightaway and there's like a little rise and the bike would just want a wheelie by itself up mid-ohio straightaway You know the super bike good super bike. I couldn't pull the front wheel off the ground on this thing I was like and I'm a fucking second and a half off the pace What the what's going on man, and? we get to the next session or something and Gary Medley's like hey Why don't you try riding my bike? The John Ashman's bike because he was out And everybody looked at each other like, why not let him try it? Fucking went right out of the gate and went straight to the front of the time sheets. Second and a half faster. So the bottom line is my bike wasn't really running that well. You know, turns out, how does he have a faster bike than I do? We're all running the same stuff here, or are we? I don't know you know it doesn't matter to me at this point I just want to ride that bike now I don't want to ride mine again and I did I started that was the turning point I made a bogus move they they started the race red flagged it and I turned and went backwards down pit road they're like no you can't do that we're putting your ass at the back of the grid for the start of the super bike race I'm like okay whatever so they did and I just blitzed the field and came through everybody and Chandler had already had a big old lead and I just started chipping away at that shit. I started reeling him in and essentially just ran out of time. Maybe he rolled out of it a little bit, didn't matter. I was coming there and that was the day that things turned around for me in superbike Race. I had Keith Code in my ear. He was coaching me because he was coaching Chandler and and it just got, that was a weekend. It came to a point. It's like no more of that shit. You know, it's like Keith, thank you very much, but you're putting too much shit in my head to think about when I arrive at a corner. You know, you 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 have me think about all this shit, and I'm like, no, I'm just I'm a seat of the pants guy right now. Let me just take off, and I got him out of my ear. I got on a faster bike, and then I was just off, you know, to the races and and finished out the year super strong and then Doug went off to run GPs. Were
2: you able to stay on the faster bike for the rest of the oh, year? Yeah.
3: yeah, I stayed on it the rest of the year. Cause Ashmi was out. And uh, yeah, so that was a game changer. And I wish I could remember the results throughout that year, but I can't. But I did win the Supersport Championship that year. Chandler won the Superbike Championship, so we had a great year as a team. And then the next year, like I said, he. He pissed off to Europe to ride a Yamaha and the GPs, and uh, and now I'm the number one guy. And I don't think Ashmead made a comeback. I think he went away, and, and my mechanic Vic went away, and Gary came to, to my bike, and we formed a new team. And then it was like, okay. So, 91, I'm winning races, I can remember, and I'm on my way to win the championship for sure. And back to that same track, Mid-Ohio, I'm out front by a mile when the bike had a mechanical. And that cost me the championship that year, just by a couple points. And then 92, but that that same year, I won the Supersport Championship and went undefeated. I believe it was that year. And there's only been two of us to ever do that, myself and Rich Oliver. Rich Oliver in the 250s. He might have done it right before me, but we had both... We just did it, you know, and that was a cool, cool accomplishment. But still kind of stands today. Um, but the super bike thing went much better for me because I'm the number one guy. Chandler's gone. I got two years on this bike. And uh, it was actually a new bike in 91. It went from the 90 bike was a different bike. 91 was a, n- a different bike. And uh, I ended up winning Daytona the first first race. Drafting Doug Poland at the finish, epic finish, closest finish at the time and ever in history, and uh, you know I just had a great day that day. It was amazing, but I, I couldn't have won it without another uh, another fellow Kawasaki rider who didn't know he helped me, but in the end he did. It was the last lap, and I'm sitting on chair. I'm sitting on Poland looking at my watch like well, I'm ready to go party at the ocean deck let's get this thing over with you know I got this in the bag because I'd been testing him drafting him checking him at start finish line I had legs to get by him well he was sandbagging a little bit he's smart dude and we go into the chicane on the last lap and I brake and he pushed it in a little deeper and he went left and right and went through there faster than I'd seen him go through there the whole race he's smart he was sitting on that <laughs> and he come we come out of the chicane I was like holy shit I'm not gonna make it he was miles ahead of me already and then we come through NASCAR 3 and as we're midway through NASCAR 3 there's a light rider on a couch Kevin blaze Florida guy and he drifts up right in front of me up to the high line for some no unknown reason he was running mid-track and then midway around the banking, he decides, I'm gonna go to the high lane where I'm sitting and I'm coming. But it was perfect timing. He moved right up in the way and let me pull right up on him. And when I got to him, he moved right out of the way. And I never had to break stride. And I came off turn four and I was coming so fast. I went down low and past Poland so fast, I think it blew the stickers off at Ducati. And he could see the checker flag. He could. He was reaching out for it, and I just, <laughs> <laughs> I think I had him right at the line, and that was just, that was the best feeling ever, so that was the first two hundred win and and then uh we battled back and forth, and Poland was going back to he was trying to win the world Superbike championship that year on a Ducati and try to come back to American cherry pick here and try to do win both. He was trying to win both. Well, it came down to the last race at Texas World Speedway, and it was me or him, you know, and this is his home track. And, you know, so, and I pretty much just fast-forwarded right through the whole 92 season, didn't I? Now I'm at the end of it, but, you know, looking back through the 92, I went on to win the Super Sport Championship again and and then closed the deal there, there at Texas World Speedway. With the last line pass or something, I mean, man, so him in Poland. came to the finish line, I beat him right there. I mean, it was almost a repeat of what happened at Daytona. But I think I led him out of the last corner, I can't remember. And closed the deal, won the championship, and uh, life was great. And that same weekend, that same day, I didn't remember, but his mother reminded me years and years later that a young kid wanted to meet me, you know, and, and as I come through the fence There he is and I shook his hand and met his mom. It was Ben Spees <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, and she told me that story years later, you know, and I was like cause I didn't remember it, you know But well, that was cool because he's a texas boy and they were there watching and And then uh Yeah, so life's good I had some problems here with my driving record here in Georgia. Lost my license for five years. My aunt lived in California, Monterey. So I called her. I said, Hey, you need a roommate? <laughs> and I loaded up everything and drove to California. You know, to, went to go get D- a driving license. Yeah, I right? went to the DMV and got a driver's license. They weren't reciprocating back in the early 90s, and everything was good and started a, kind of a new life out there. Got hooked up with Jeff Haney, who was an ex-Honda factory racer. We started training together. I started moved in with Jeff, and we started riding bikes. We were going to Kenny Roberts Ranch and sliding with, with Rainey and, La- and Mamola and Kenny Jr. And, you know, we were in it. We were doing it. This is, life is great, you know. Yeah, I always heard stories about the Roberts Ranch and all these GP guys t- training out there. And, and what were you riding? XR100. XR100. Stock. Was, yeah. They didn't mess with their bikes. They'd them stock. That back then, they'd put a street 391 Dunlop or whatever. I think it was a 391. We'd groove the shit out of it, in the knobby front, and we'd just slide around all day, working on throttle control, working on sliding, working on our race craft. Because what we'd do, we'd just we'd run a five lap race and we'd reline up another five, reline up. It was just all day. It was epic. And uh, and we were training in the gym throughout the week, and riding bicycles up and down the coast of Monterey. It was just great. That was 93, and I'm out on my bike, riding on the bike path, and Paul Crothers calls, and he says, man, Daytona this year, you ready? I'm like, I'm getting ready right now. I'm training right now. He said, oh, guess what? They're gonna start, they're gonna give a Rolex Daytona to the pole sitter. I was like, holy shit. I, said, I'm, I told him I was I'm winning that watch. <laughs> and he said, guess what else? I said, what? He said, Eddie Lawson's coming back to race. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the best news ever. You know, because I'd proven myself to you before I can win it. But now, Lawson. this is the real yardstick, four-time world champion, coming back to ride the Yamaha. I was like, this is it. This is where I'm going to show him what I can do. And uh, so we get to Daytona again. I did what I said. I won the watch, set the pole, um, broke track record. And uh, and then fast forward to the race, and we have one of the most epic races ever. Um, typically, it's a two, two pit stop race. And we had tire trouble. Both Eddie and I both chunked tire throughout it, so we both had to make an unscheduled three pit stop race. But every time we'd pit... And we'd come back, we'd end up right back on track together. And I rode my ass off in the infield. His bike was faster. The Yamaha was probably two or three mile an hour faster. But on the banking at Daytona, that seems like an, uh, you know, just an unbelievable advantage. And I would dive on the inside of him going to turn one every lap, and I'd ride my ass off through the infield. And then he was just playing. He was riding hard. He was having to ride hard. He couldn't get away from me, you know what I'm saying? But he was having to ride, and, and it was just the best day, one of the best days ever on a motorcycle because he is the man, you know, and I'm here I am racing against him, right with him. Nobody else around. We were gone. And on the last lap, to come down the back straightaway. I'm leading it. There was a slower rider as I tip into the chicane. And it was Chuck Graves. And, uh, I Went left. I went right and then it had and as we went right left up on the banking again I saw I'm stuffing this dude now and I went for it. He turned in I had to go through the dirt psh, Bike gets sideways come out on the bank Lost all my drive and there goes that Eddie lost guy <laughs> on the top side <laughs> in the high lane and I looked up. I was like this is bad and I was able to get up into his draft and I had the throttle cable twisted as hard as I could and that just the cow He just didn't have it that day enough to pull out. I mean I finished Right on his tires. I was,
2: that I was there that day. Yeah.
3: yeah, so that was another epic race and and uh, We come through turn one and I look at it and I'm like, yeah, man You're number one and he said nah, you're number one and I was like fucking I that, did that's awesome so that was he knew you'd go a little lucky that day he huh? knew he right. knew i rode that shit right and uh did you go to europe that year yeah that was my so that was the start up before okay. we got to europe you know we always had so that you time. knew you were going to europe yeah we okay knew. we were our path was set and uh i finished up strong there and i was stoked and then we went off to europe but that was you and muzzy that went to europe yes yeah correct and when did
2: you change some Merle to Muzzy and the Kawasaki team. I
3: didn't came to Kawasaki in 1990.
2: Yeah, didn't you say you were with Merle Plumley for a while? Merlin? Merlin, yeah.
3: Merlin. Merlin was Chandler's mechanic and then when Doug went off to the World Championship, I forget how it all broke down, but it was one year, maybe Merlin ended up working on my bikes in 92 mm. in mm. America. That's what it was. Mm. That's it. That's it. He was my crew chief in '92 when we won the championship, and then you went to Europe. With I him, think Marlon might have went to Honda after that. I think he did. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't he with de Hamels? I think that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And then Gary Medley came with me as we went to Europe together in '93. So mm-hmm. that was what. That's how it went down. I had Vic working for Vic Fasola, was my crew chief from 90 to 91 through 91 and then Merlin 92 and then Gary Medley and I teamed up in 93 with Rich Dawn another one of our crew guys who uh, went on to work for the Yosh team for many 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 years after that through the Mladen years and also I had great guys Davey Jones, Davey worked for Yosh through all those Milan years and he, he's—he we had a really good team so we went to Europe and we joined Aaron Slight and uh, Peter Doyle and Reg O'Rourke, who those two essentially ended up being Maladdins guys too later in life. And uh, so we had a hell of a fucking team. And it was a weird dynamic for sure because Muzzy's coming in and almost pushing Peter out. You know, Peter was the team guy. and He'd been a Kawasaki guy for a long, long time. I think his dad was high up in Kawasaki down in Australia, whatever. I don't remember all of it. Anyway, they were dialed in, you know, they had all the shit laid out. I mean, we, they had been racing in Europe already for a couple of years running that factory team out of Friedrichsdorf, Kawasaki there in Germany. So we joined uh, forces with them and, uh, and a lot changed, you know, the bikes changed, they were, they had different ideas about bike setup, so I was all ears to try to learn, you know, and we, we came together as a team, you know, and then I started hitting, hitting hard. And I won five races that year, won the championship. Um, Who was your main competition that year? Well, it was Aaron, my teammate was one of them, and, uh, and then Fogarty. Carl, I think that Did he was, do the whole season? He did the whole season, yeah. Maybe the a, year before he did it, I don't know. He was a privateer one year in World Super was mm-hmm. not he? Mm-hmm. I think that was the year before me. And right. I think when I came Because he didn't in, run a full
2: season and then he was factory rider. Yeah,
3: because so back up to 1990, remember, he rode the Hondas because yeah. they came to Daytona, him yeah. and with, him. with them, yeah. And then and I think 91, I think Fogarty had a private Ducati deal and he ran World Superbike. maybe part of it and then I believe in 92, he was a factory guy, and I think he felt like this is my time to win the championship, mm-hmm. but then here I came, and <laughs> we battled it. I
2: was telling you earlier, we were talking to Foggy the year he came over, remember he was giving all that shit in the press about America and Americans, and you fell off and jumped on, and he he just chewed our ear off about 20 or 30 minutes in the piss.
3: <laughs> we didn't get a word in. He was oh, just
2: yeah, rawr. yeah. That was some heady days. He that?
3: needed somebody from home to talk to. <laughs> didn't yeah, he? it was me and
2: my mate Brian, <laughs> a couple of English guys sitting there. Yeah. we we could understand him, you know. Yeah, Oliver in America, <laughs> big
3: America, by himself. You know, he's uh uh-huh, He's out of his element. You oh, know? He was out of his all. element there. He did not like that place. No, he didn't. But I mean, That's just I bad. mean, having him on the Ducati, and not just him. I mean. Giancarlo Falapa. Falapa was a one on had Mertens, Stephen Mertens. You had a bunch of guys. Yeah. Piravano, maybe he was on the Yamaha that year. But these guys, I mean, the bikes were fast. Yeah, Piravano you know. was on a Yamaha that year. Yeah, he yeah. ended up on a Ducati. Though, some,
2: where was Raymond Roach in this? Roach that?
3: might have been there for that. I don't know. He might have been down the year before. Mm. Him and Poland had a battle. Like, 91 um, and 92, Doug won the world championship there. Mm. I want to say Doug won it in '91 and '92. I want to say he took over the, the helm from Roche. Yeah, he was. Uh huh. But I mean, look, the Ducatis on that series. By the time we got there, Merkel had won it the first two years.
2: He did it on an RC30. Yeah. Yeah. And those years were. I think it
3: was '89. Or '87 88. or '89. '88 oh, and '89, maybe. Maybe. And then '90, Roach won it. What? If, if we were smart about this, we'd have it all pulled up with the results. <laughs> I know <laughs> our podcast to be really long because we're trying to figure, right, out, trying to figure out what year it was. But anyway, yeah. nevertheless, so it was a Ducati-dominated series. Hey, I have say an excuse. Out. You were there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've hit my head and and uh, done a lot of mm. lot of other things to cloud up my memory. But yeah, so you was, took the championship that that yeah. year, first year at it. I mm. only saw. It. We went over in '92. I, I guess I forgot. A lot of the 92 stuff we went over and we ran albacete in spain That's right. we did Donington and we did spa so i got to race at spa before they quit going there yeah so you had a bit of knowledge over I there. i did mm. um i podiumed at donnington podium at spa was running really good at albacete i think i tipped over in albacete i hit the hit a wet patch or something but nevertheless we made our mark and we're like okay we went back home, and we're like, we can compete with those guys. We know that now. And, and then we mm-hmm. geared up for 93, and we came back. And uh, and then it was on. You know, it was a real battle against the Ducatis. Um, they were super fast off the turn, and they had great top speed, too. So um, the Cowie was, a, you know, it wasn't as torquey, so it didn't come off the corner quite as good, but it had great top speed, and it was a good handling motorcycle everywhere we went. So that allowed me to, to just... Well chasing the Ducati and the speed of the Ducati allowed made me break later It made me let the brake off earlier and have m- better roll speed It made me a better rider, you know chasing those bikes around the racetrack. Not one guy but that whole atmosphere of I've got to be faster. I've got to break deeper all that shit. So <coughs> I stepped up and I won five races that year and probably should have won more I look back. There's two races every weekend, so it's hard to remember them all um, We had a great year man in 92 and I mean 93, 93. we we um, We finished second at Daytona we won the world championship and we went to Suzuka and at the time you'll know Suzuka 8-hour was the biggest race in the world period for motorcycles. It mm-hmm. just was all the Jeep lot of the GP guys a lot of top superbike guys all, and all the fast Japanese guys. And I'm telling you, when you go over there, it's a whole different world. So, 93 um, was the last year for the Formula 1 superbike rules. They were Formula 1, they were hand-built superbikes. It was the worst handling thing I'd ever ridden, I think. And Aaron and I just kept chugging along. Aaron Slight and I throughout the race. Forget where I qualified the thing. It wasn't that great. But you won the I qualified eight, huh? third or fourth, so it wasn't that bad. And they did the Le Mans start, which I'd never done that before. I said, I'm going to outrun every one of these guys to the <laughs> bike. And I did. I ran, and I, I jumped my leg over the bike and hit the start button at the same time, and it couldn't have fired up any faster. And it, and I, it's like it was almost just perfect. As I threw my leg over, I hit the starter, touched the throttle, let the clutch out, and I fucking whole-shotted that race by a hundred yards. I went into turn one by myself over Dewin and Lawson and all the and a, a line as far back as you could see of motorcycles and I was like, Look at this shit. <laughs> My redneck ass just all shot of the biggest race in the world and I'm laughing and I'm riding my wheels off, you know, and the bike and then here come Lawson he passed me and on the, the Honda's were so good there. And and then Dewin gets by or his teammate, whoever. And so we ended up running a solid race. Those two guys both fell down, doing and losing, made mistakes and hit the deck, and we never did, and we just kept trucking along. We had a lap lead, and they peeled back that whole lap. They were, but we had such a lead, we, we were able to win it, and uh, that was the, the be- one of the best days of my life ever because, you know, Kawasaki, from what I remember, had never won that race either. So here we are. They never won the two hundred. We handed them that. They never won the World Superbike Championship. We handed them that after we handed them the eight-hour win. So we were kind of like heroes, I think, in mm. in their eyes. i with Muzzy. We had a good program going. And well, they made the replica ZX7 for the win, didn't they? And they the four hundred. They made two hundred of the ZXr four of ZX four hundreds, which I have now. You have the 400 I have the 400 it's yeah. painted up in the same Ito ham Sponsor scheme that we had on the bike and they made 200 of them and they gave both Aaron and I one And uh, that was a great day man um, Yeah, so that so 93 90, was a big 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 it year. was my year. Yeah, it was just awesome I think we went through the rest of the year without too many hiccups and finished out and and had the points lit and that was it and then Come back to 94 And we go to Daytona We'll start at Daytona And I was in the heat race They ran heat races back then Instead of time practice They ran two 50 mile qualifiers Which were great You know yeah, It was mm-hmm. more but money there, yeah. It was awesome Another show Two more races So I'm out front by a mile Going away And the chain broke Or something happened In the chicane So I ended up getting relegated To starting 67th Out of 80, because back then they'd take a full grid, and then they'd split, you know, 40 would go, and then they'd wait 10 seconds and send the other 40. I didn't care. I was like, okay, this will be a real good challenge for me. I'm like, let's start back in the back, and uh, no problem. I marched my way through the field. I can't remember the details of that race, but there were no hiccups, no problems. In the pits or anything, and everything went off without a hitch. And I won it going away. I want to say from the back. And then we went to Europe, and I was on a tear. I was winning everything right out of the gate. I was doing doubles at Misano, to Hockenheim. I mean, just wearing them out. I ended up winning nine races that year, and losing the championship by four points to Fogarty at the end. And, you know, there were reasons why I had already built up a 40-point lead or something by the time we got to Albacete. And crashed in turn one in oil. Race one, crashed it by myself and race two. Uh, And there were all 40 points. The whole 40 points just dissipated in one weekend. But nevertheless, and we continued to battle. I ended up winning nine races that year. And, uh, And it came down to the last race of Phillip Island. And and uh, I just could didn't have the feel, man, I just, the the tires weren't that good, they weren't working that good there, I didn't have my bike set up very well, so a lot of stuff happened that weekend, I had a teammate, Terry Reimer, one of my favorite guys to ever ride with, I love that guy, two tall tell, and he's cool as hell, and we just, we ran all over the world, acting like a couple of kids, man, just, just having a great time, man, cutting up, and had to find somebody cool to hang out with, and so we get to uh, Australia, Phillip Island, and just, there's this championship on the line. It's whoever wins is the champ here. So, and Terry had been running well on the, on the Cowboy, but he wasn't, like, winning. And he, you know, so there was this hot shit kid named Anthony Gobert. And he had just wrapped up the uh, Australian Superbike Championship, I want to say, on a Honda team that he rode for. And they're entered in the World Superbike Race on a Honda. When we get down there, next thing you know, Muzzy marches down to the Honda garage, pulls Gobert aside and says, Hey, man, you want to ride our bike? And he left on the scene, (laughs) came down to our garage. He took Terry and said, Terry, you're done. Bench to Terry. Gobert left his Honda team high and dry. This all happened in one day. And Gobert comes down. To our bike, had never rode the Cowie. <laughs> and we go out, and the dude is just flying. It's, this is his home track, you know. This is the track that I see him do things that you, other guys just can't do. And fast forward to the race. I forget where, who qualified, whatever. Fogarty was going really well. I was going decent, good. I was second or third. And the race starts, and the team orders are for him to stay behind me and you know, go over and help if he can. And, and we start going and going, and Fogarty's starting to get away just a little bit. We're coming on that long left onto the front straightaway, and every lap, that's why I was struggling through there big time. Losing time, and I come off that last corner, and I, <laughs> I just take a glance over my right shoulder, and fuck, Gobert was parked on my exhaust pipe. I'm an inch away as we roll through this fast right-hand corner, come on the front straight, Every lap. I'm just holding this dude up. Finally Fogerty gets half a straightaway head. And I'm like, I I had to cut this dude loose. I waved him by. It was so awesome. He just went right up to Fogerty. Ended up out, I think he outran him and won the race. He either won it or for the second the first day he raced the bike. And it was like, Boy, this dude's for real. <laughs> you know, it was awesome. But I was not having a good weekend and finished third or whatever. And then race two comes around. Same scenario. Sit behind me until I can't anymore. You know him and, and Fogarty again. Same scenario. He's starting to get away. And and I had a chunk. A tire, you know, finally I had to let it go. And then my rear tire chunked. I had to pit early and that was the end of the championship. So, but, uh. And he ended up winning it by four or five points, I think. So of a season, I won more races and lost the championship due to a couple of DNS. And then Magello, I remembered Magello. I was leading Magello that year by a mile, and the battery went dead or something. So I had a couple DNS, yeah, a couple yeah, crashes, blah blah blah. I should have been two world championships in a row, but it wasn't. What meant to be. So then we'll move to '95. Start at Daytona, we've hired, I got a new teammate, Anthony Goverton, the hot, latest, greatest kid out of Australia, right? And he comes to Daytona, but Daytona is my house, you know, he's not going to beat me down Are you want a Kozaki
2: or Yamaha? Cowey. Koso, yeah.
3: Yeah, and uh, I just signed a two, three-year deal with him, because I just, yeah, and uh, so here we go into Daytona, and man, there's a lot of shit went on that weekend, I ended up meeting this girl, and ended up staying out the night before qualifying, until four in the morning, drinking margaritas, and waiting on her to get off work, and then not sleeping, a, a wink, and I crawl into my motor home, I was the first one at the track that morning when I left her house, and I go into the motor home, I'm like, Man, Scott, you've really done it this time. Boy, how are you going to fix this? It's poll day. It's time to qualify for the Rolex. And I had signed on to ride the 600 that weekend, too. They had a new ZX66R or whatever. And I said, I don't want no money to ride it. I want 20 grand to win the thing. That's all I want. That's it. All or nothing for me on the 600 class. So I crawled in my motorhome, hungover. Been out chasing this girl all night. You know, that's just how screwed up I was, you know. I had this great career going but I was trying to sabotage it on the every day at home by doing all the wrong things. And uh mm. I get in the motorhome, take a shower, eat some cereal, turn the indie car race on, I had recorded, and I'm laying there on the couch. And the next thing I know I wake up to this pounding on the motorhome door and it's Steve Johnson, my creature. The team manager and he's going. Super bikes are on the grid. I had already slept through the 600 practice. Got out on the super bike. Got out, came out of there with one eye open. Oh. Got oh. over to the bike because they were already on the grid. I had to get dressed in like two minutes and and, and go to the grid. And I'm still seeing double and I just rolled around. You know, we normally will scuff in tires for the race that morning. This is right. What, now this is qualifying day. Sorry, we gotta go out, and I can't ride. I am six or seven seconds off the pace, and I'm just rolling around. And I came in, and I handed them a bike, and I played it off like I'm just I'm cool. I'm just checking it out. Everything feels good. <laughs> and then practice uh, session ends, and fast forward to one o'clock that afternoon, and a 600. We qualified 600s, I think, first, and I went out, broke the track record on 600. Beat Duhama was second. I think I was a second and a half faster than he was, or something. Stupid amount of time in between me and him. The Cowley was quick. It ran good. And then Superbike qualifying rolls around, and I go out, break the track record again, win the Rolex. So some of the shit I did was all wrong, but just crazy how I pulled it off. And we get through that that day, and uh, we got a couple of days to get ready for Sunday. I'm not hungover anymore. I'm ready to go Sunday <laughs> <laughs> and we start the race, and first lap, I mean, look, the 95 race, if you can look back at any other race, I don't care what Daytona hunt, you look back in the history of the whole thing and you're not going to find a more stacked field than in 95. Troy Corser, Colin Edwards, Freddie Spencer, Fred Merkel. I mean, and and the list just kept going. Carl Fogarty. um, The list of of world champions are going to be world champions is thick in that field, you know. So my most proud day. Um, I'd already beat these guys hungover for the poll. So I'm like, there's no way they're going to beat me on Sunday. And we start the race. Courser and Edwards are 1 2. We come across the start finish line on lap one, dive into turn one. And I'm like, I'm oh, like, these guys are going too slow, you know. So we come out of one, a sideways, through around the arm code. And I just said, I'm going down the inside, boys. And I passed both of them in one shot. And tipped it into the horseshoe, and I was spot on my line, but the right side of the tire wasn't that warm yet. Touched the throttle. We all know what happened. Bike spun out. I'm cussing myself as I'm sliding across the ground. Like, what the fuck have you done now? You know they've spent all this money on you, and you just threw it all away on the first, on the second lap. And as I run over the bike, I jump over the bike, and I snatch that thing off the ground like it was a mini bike, a bicycle and these corn and everybody came by. First, everybody in the first wave, second wave, everybody came by, <laughs> and we're still trying to get this thing started, and one corner worker's pulling the bike off, the other one's helping me push, it's just not, not going well. And about the f- third try, it didn't start, and those guys kind of gave up, and I gave them a look like, dude, one more shot, and that thing fired up, and I knew then, that second, that I was gonna win that day, and, I just it, it took the front brake lever and it rolled it around the handlebar So I had to reach over farther to get the front brake and it taken the right foot peg and spun it upside down and bent it downward like a limp dick, let's say <laughs> And it was a smooth part of the of the you know, the grippy yeah. parts on top now I'm on the smooth part, but I didn't care as long as I could get my foot on something I was gonna ride it without a foot peg brake lever was still there, and I just proceeded about my business, like, right back into race mode, and just started clipping people off, just so fast, my bike was so fast, and I was just blowing by people all day long, pace car came out, somebody crashed, or whatever, this is when they tried this crazy pace car idea, and uh, so here I sit in this long, single file pace line, you know, running around, and guys are him-hawing around and they're not staying close and you know it's critical for me to get to the front you guys ain't going to the front I know that but I'm like waving guys let's go get up here let's go and they cut them loose as they go up on the banking and I can't start racing for three more corners till I get over here so there they go flying around NASCAR one two and I'm sitting in this line of traffic waiting 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 and then finally I could go and again I'd start clipping guys off and and we pit on lap 22 and 42, something like that. Those are our pit laps, you know. I was already leading it by lap 22, somehow, some way. I was that on. I mean, and the field of guy, like I go back and look, it does, you know, these aren't chumps, these are world champs. And so I can't explain it. I don't even know. I'm just riding the wheels off this thing, and it's just my track, you know. I got this place dialed in. And so by the, pit stop I was leading it already and then I just continued that building on that lead and did they fix the break no, the They didn't, touch, they didn't anything. touch it just I was like they were all standing out on pit road and I came by that first light, waiting to, and I'm like <laughs> dove into turn one I was like I'm good gave him the sign and uh, what a great day that was just an amazing day. a whole week, as a weekend as a whole but back at the 600 race, I took off on the 600. I was going to win it, too, but they pinched the fuel line when they put the fuel, line up, fuel tank on it. And get up, it'd run good in the infield on the warm-up lap. And I'd get up on the bank, and it'd bop bop bop, 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 Wouldn't run clear, and so I didn't even get to start that race, but ended it in the right way. Met a new girl <laughs> and uh, brought her home with me, and uh, that was a whole other story. But as a as a race, I mean, that was the race. Probably the race, Of, yeah. of my career. Yeah, yeah.
2: <clears throat> really good. That's probably one of the most iconic photographs, isn't it, of you flipping through the air, yeah. getting off that bike. They've run and run and run that picture over the years, haven't they? Yeah. 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 So then
3: fast forward to 1990. No, we're still in 95. Sorry, we ain't left America yet. Hang on, Scott. So then we get to Europe. And this is a new bike for 95. It's a different engine. We won the race at Daytona on the 94 bike. The 95 bikes were already in Europe waiting on us to get there. And Mozzie came up with this dual canister exhaust. I don't know if you ever saw pictures of that thing. And we were trying this and that, but the bike was just slow. The racetracks, I'd, I'd been doing doubles the week. The year before, I'm finishing 10th. And, 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 like, this is not going well right away out of the gate. Um so we had already run two or three rounds that year. One Daytona went over there and and then uh, we get to Masano. Terrible weekend. I don't know if it's eighth and tenth or some shit, I don't know. A second slower than I ran the year before and it wasn't me, it was the bike, clearly. So knock, knock, knock on the motorhome door, Kel Edge. You know Kel. Good dude. We were always close and Enjoyed hanging out with him and he comes in, sit down, see what the hell's going on. And he's like, guess what, Scott? I said, what? He said, your name's on a list to replace Kevin Swanson on the Lucky Strike bike. I laughed. I said, I'm 34 years old already now. By then, 32, 34, I don't remember. Can't be serious, you know? So he leaves the motor home and my wheels are just spinning like out of control in my head, thinking, could this be real? Because in my mind, all these years, I, I wasn't a Grand Prix racer, but I pictured myself on the Lucky Strike Suzuki. In my mind, years before, and leading up to the point where we're at now, if I ever made it, I'd just see myself on that bike. Now this guy telling me I'm on the list to replace him? No way.
2: Couldn't Do you remember s- who was on the list? Uh-uh.
3: No, Couldn't sleep that night. I knew my name was on it. That's the only one that mattered to me. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't sleep that night. So the next morning, I wake up, and I call Cal. I said, can you arrange a meeting with Gary Taylor? Because we got Donington Park as our next race. So I got to take the motorhome back that way. He made it happen. I went ahead and flew on up to, to England. and let Chris drive the motorhome. Tuesday morning, I'm sitting in this Lucky Strike Suzuki race shop. In front of Gary Taylor. This is all happening so fast. My head's spinning. And we chat, and we chit-chat, and blah la la Well, would you be interested in trying, riding this by? I'm here, ain't I? I'm just sitting in your office. Yeah, I'm interested. Boom. Right away, he calls the book and actually books me a plane ticket to Czechoslovakia that day. And so they, the team's already down there. They're already testing that Tuesday. They're already there. Daryl Beattie and the team are testing them other teams, and Czechoslovakia just half to be one of my best racetracks, I had great success there in the, on the superbike, and uh, they fly me in there, I walk in the garage the first time, they're warming this thing up, they fired that thing up, and I couldn't believe how loud it was, the two-stroke, and I'm a four-stroke guy, you know, I've been around this world, and it was just like, wow, my adrenaline just starts going, you know, and I'm like, Finally, the dream's coming true, you know. I'm going to be on the GP bike in a minute. And uh, kind of get choked up thinking about it. And uh, I rolled out of the pits that first time, and I was just like, this is happening. Both turn one, I'm like, this is it. Pinned it. Coming out of two. And just dove in head first, you know. I was just riding the wheels off. I was like, couldn't believe how light it was and, and how well it could stop. And how well it could turn. Um, and then all of a sudden different because the super bikes, they have a hinge in the middle of them. You know, they're loose. They move around and they flex and shit like that. This bike's a stiff and it's tight and it's fast and it does everything really positively. And uh, so I'm flying. Before lunch, I had already gone quicker than Swans had ever gone on the thing in his whole life there. And these guys are like, okay. So they set up, we go to lunch, there at the track, at the hospitality, whatever, and everything's great, and they already have a contract for me by noon, by lunch. The predicament was I've signed a three year deal with Kawasaki already. So I I get my lawyer on the phone, which I'd already done that on the Monday. As soon as I found out I had a chance to go do that, I said, where are we at contract-wise? And he went to work on that side of things and I went on to do my business with Gary and then to test the bike And lost her short like right after lunch. I'm so pumped. I'm flying They got a contract for me and I go back out I'm excited and I go flying into turn to turn one two down the straight into turn three Bing 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 that back shift a couple and I tipped it in. I'm like, oh, I need one more back shift as I'm leaned in and I they drop the clutch. They don't have slipper clutches in the GP bikes like they did super bikes. <laughs> and I found out real quick how fast they can bite and how hard. And I, don't, I let the clutch out and that thing went whoop, whoop, and went sideways and slammed me so fast. I'd never crashed to where I'm laying in the gravel trap trying to figure out what I did wrong. And I'd already knew on all my other crashes what had gone wrong. I just overcooked it or whatever this thing slammed me to the ground so fast and I'm in the gravel and I'm like, hang on, I gotta try to figure out what just happened. That's how violent they are and how quick they react to your mistakes. And I realized that I didn't match the RPM with the clutch release, it's simple. I didn't even ask, does this thing have a slipper clutch in it, before I rode it. I found out the hard way, so it broke two or three toes. It smashed my foot i went to the infield care center i'm like inject that shit with something because i'm finishing the day on this bike i'm not this ain't the end of it so they're like are you crazy yeah shoot that thing up let's go got me deadened it put me back on the bike <laughs> and i finished the day out and uh and then we i can remember limping through vienna to the hotel and trying to get to the airport and and I show up at Donington Park for the next round. I, I, by now it's Thursday, right? I've been over there. They don't know where I've been. And I come limping in the pits, you know. What happened to you? Oh, I had a mountain bike accident, I said. Broke my broke a couple of toes, and that was that was what my excuse was. And uh, borrowed one of my buddy Cliff. Trip Nobles, another Georgia guy, was in World Superbike race for roomy Honda, I want to say. And he had a bigger foot, so I went on and borrowed a size 12 or whatever right foot, right boot, just so I could get on the bike and ride it again. Went on through the week, I think I finished on the second or third in race one, maybe. And then race two, the bike broke. In Term 1 at Donington I knew that day I'd never be back because then I'd already been talking to my lawyer and We had done the contracts with Kawasaki and Muzzy as Scott Russell Inc. Scott Russell Incorporated They had signed a contract with Scott Russell Inc. Not Scott Russell So Scott Russell Inc. and my lawyer appointed Terry Reimer as the rider for Scott Russell, Inc. At the next round, they're like, they're like, they couldn't believe it. It was a loophole, and I was out. And I left it, and I wasn't happy about it, because that was my family, you know, and it was a rough deal. But I knew as a racer that was my dream to get to the GP, so you don't get a second shot a lot of times at that. So I, I broke the contract, pissed a lot of people off, probably lost a few fans on that deal. I don't know. But, I mean, it's a dream I had, you know, and this is my dream. I'm going for it. I hope you all understand. So, I get to Magello. The first time I'm going to race the bike is at Magello. Muzzy's lawyers blocked me riding the bike on Friday. It was a bunch of shit going on. So, finally, I got to get on the bike on Saturday and uh, qualified 12th, finished 12th. And uh, that's where it started, the GP, my GP career started at Magella on Saturday. Uh, I actually started Czechoslovakia <laughs> on a Tuesday. But, um. That
2: was a tough bike to ride though, wasn't it?
3: It was, I mean, and I found out day one how tough, how unforgiving it was, you know. It don't, no, no mistakes with this guy. You gotta be spot on with this bike. Um, but I, I enjoyed it because it was a new challenge. And it was a two stroke, and I'm at the pinnacle of the sport now. And Doom was having a reign of terror, you know, he was killing him, and that's about that time. Um, so we go to the second round. We go to Lamar, and I think I qualified sixth somewhere in that neighborhood. Started the race, crashed, and turned. Eight or nine, I forget, it's so a downhill right hander, double apex. Picked it back up, finished sixth. That was race two on the 500. I thought that's pretty good to crash and get back up, still finished top six. So fast forward to Donington Park, the next race, I'm like, here, I'm licking my chops again because this is my track again. You know, I've been wearing people out on the Superbike race and winning all kinds of races at Donington over the years. And we go, and it's going really well. I'm top three qualified, you know, in practice. It's doing, beating my teammate, and then me. And I'm solidly in the top three at every session, pretty much. And then, plug chop. On the last lap of every practice session, there's a designated area, you can do a plug chop. Pull the bike over and they can check the carburation, you know, the, look at the plug. Well, you don't do that until you get to the your flag on practice. Well, this French rider, I forget his name, decides to do it about five minutes early before session comes. And here I come, full tilt down the back straightaway. And this dude does a plug chop and just cuts right across the front of him. And I hit him at 140 or 50 miles an hour. Broke my wrist. I just set fastest time in the, in the morning practice. So I was set to possibly win the third time I rode the GP bike with really no time. And and then that was a real hiccup, man, because now I'm on my minimums. I'm hurt. I got to go home. I got to heal up. I go home. I'm not doing the right shit. I'm partying. I'm I'm not training. I'm not doing the things I need to do because I'm in, trying to be the old Scot still and, and lead two different lives at the same time. I get back to... Uh, Europe finally back to Czechoslovakia where I love so much but I'm trying to ride with a broken wrist half broken not half healed and it just set the pace for my whole run through the GPS and um,
2: never getting enough time on the bike uninjured huh
3: copy that I mean mm. he's injured half the time and uh, I and do trying remember to, trying, trying to learn the new bike and you know all of that stuff and, I do
2: remember you saying once you broke more bones in the MotoGP career than you did the rest of your career.
3: Seems like it. Probably not actual truth, but it felt (laughs) like it. I mean, I mean, the thing threw me to the ground a bunch. And now I know why Kevin, you know, in the end had to let it go, you know, because he just physically couldn't. He'd been beat up so much from crashing that thing. Um you know you know you got to give him the credit because that dude was runner up in the championship a hundred times i don't know it's hard to remember right you don't remember who finished second but he was that guy all the time all the time and then he wins it the same year i won my championship dude you know unfortunate circumstances with rainy getting hurt that year but you know i look now and i know how much pain that dude went through i can feel his pain you know so the bike was really diabolical in some areas to ride and not forgiving at all. So I'm riding injured and just kind of fumbled my way through that season. And had a couple good runs later in the year. Um, Just seems like a blur now. It just seemed like it wasn't going smoothly. But I was still showing signs of progression and showing signs of like, hey, I can, run with these front guys too, on occasion, you know. And so we go to we ended up in 1996. Let's move on from 95. I think I finished. I don't know in the championship. Not too far, 11th place or whatever. So the next year we come back. We go to Daytona '96, and the and they bring the whole team, the whole. GP team comes to Daytona with me on this brand new 96 r 750 that they'd just come out with and it was fast it was had good top speed Um, and we were on Michelin tires that year which was a change because I'd always been a Dunlop guy at Daytona and and, uh, and we had an epic battle we had a before the race it rained the race out that year and that was the only time out of all the years I've ever gone to Daytona that it rained rain delay and not just a delay they postponed it for a whole week mm. so in the meantime i got my porsche cabriolet i'm driving around and i ended up going to orlando to the porsche dealership looking around and there's the new twin turbo porsche so in the meantime i just dropped a 100 grand on a new car down there waiting for the race to come back the next weekend and i'll just go ahead and tell you it turns out if it wouldn't have raced rained out the race <laughs> it would have been a really bad day for a few of us because we read the forecast we all knew it and we all knew that the chances of rain were almost 100% so me and Gobert Courser were like hey let's go have a drink <laughs> <laughs> so we go down to Razzles is where all my action happens in Daytona and all the good and the bad and we start drinking and it's 12 and it's still raining, so we get another drink <laughs> and now it's one in the morning And we get another you know, it's still raining. So we continue this <laughs> i wake up in the hotel room the next morning Just there was no way I would have been able to race that day. Thank God it was still <laughs> raining and I think I felt the same for those two guys, but luckily for us they postponed the race that day So we all died as a major bullet <laughs> And then fast forward a week later we come back we got no fans in the stands and the race goes off and me and Duhamel Duhamel have another epic battle and the Suzuki was good but it just it, it was a little bit not handling just right so up on the banking it was a little bit unstable and that just wears you out over a 57 lap race You know so I I battled through that and then and we come to the start finish line Duhama made a great move coming off nascar four he went low then he went high right toward the wall I was a little bit slack. I couldn't follow it quick enough And uh once I got back in his wheel tracks now I got the draft working and his front wheel passed the start finish line But I promise you my back wheel passed it before his did it was that close so he wins it And we get we leave everything's good It wasn't great, because I needed to win that race for those guys, and didn't happen, but whatever. So then we go back to Europe, and we go to Malaysia, and I think I ran 6th in Malaysia or something. Then we go to Japan, Suzuka, which I love, and uh, I qualified 12th or something. And I'm on the grid, wondering, what's wrong here? You know, and I'm like, I don't even know how to figure this out. And the green light came on, and I just forget everything, just ride. And I rode my way through the pack, and Norik Abbey, Japanese Hero out front, Alex Crevel in second. Mick Dewan had some sort of a little tire problem or something. I passed him. I'm like, that's not normal. <laughs> and I just kept my charge on, and then I, I had I finished third at, on the end of that day. And one more lap, I'd have finished second. I would have had Crevel. So I was like really stoked about that. And then uh, that season went went on and uh I just I can't remember a lot of it I remember I ended up finishing sixth that year and getting rookie of the year in the GP so that was kind of cool and then they didn't really like the way I was conducting myself on and off the track sometimes so they got rid of me and they hired Anthony Gobert and that's a whole nother story in itself (laughs) <laughs> and so, you know, David Brivio, thank God for him at Yamaha. He still loved me, and I remember the good days on Kawasaki's and World Superbike, and I went to Assen earlier that season. I knew my deal was kind of dying at Yo- at Suzuki, and I went to Assen just to hang out and, and uh, watch the World Superbike race. So we started talking then, and then we came to a deal, a two-year deal with Yamaha, and, and uh, came back to Daytona the next year, Came to Daytona and tested the Yamaha. That's when I met Erica my wife was testing for 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 that and uh, And then we went on and Had great success at Daytona broke a track record won another watch won the race um, And then we went to Europe And the Yamaha just did never feel like my bike I'd never fit it I did it didn't feel at home on the bikes. I struggled all year long pretty much. I think the best finish I had was second at Donnie, at Brands Hatch, which is one of my favorite tracks ever. Didn't you
2: say you felt like you were all over the front of it?
3: Yeah, it felt like I had a short gas tank, yeah. and I'm a tall guy, so yeah. when you're in the braking zone, if you don't have a longer gas tank to where you can slide up and kind of take the weight off your hands, you see what I'm saying, then you're your arms in the brake zone, and it just never fit me right. And I always struggle with it. Looking back, we probably could have done other different things to the bike to make it better, but... It didn't happen, um, so I floundered around on that and didn't go great. Like I said, second was my best finish for the all year in, in Europe. And I uh, think Colin Evers with my teammate, he had some good runs that year, but that Yamaha was long in the tooth. It had mm. been around for many years leading into that. he went well on it, didn't he? Uh, Haga. Haga, Haga, Noriyuki yeah, Haga. Yeah. He cut his teeth on that bike yeah, in, so he in, was japan. in japan so he yeah. came from japan riding that and he was, he came in the next year because colin moved over to the castro honda team and so uh and i had lobbied to change to michelin tires because we had a bunch of rain races in 97 and the, it was clear that the michelins were way better in the rain so i ended up going with michelins the next year it never didn't rained it rain. <laughs> 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 and the bike didn't work out great with michelins either it didn't have a lot of feel in the front end and and Haga came along and he was just tearing the scene up. I mean, he was winning races on the thing. And I was like, I couldn't figure out how how he was doing it. But, so 97, you know, 98, we can go back. I won Daytona again in 98, going away, easy.
2: On the Yamaha.
3: On the Yamaha. No competition. I had Chandler. Chandler was about 10 seconds back. And I just kept him in check the whole last section. I mean, I had more in the tank. But it was just like an easy win. And so I'm like, why can't I ride this bike fast in Europe? So a, a long season in 98, no rain. So I didn't get to to benefit from that. And, uh, and Haga was riding out of his skin, you know, making me look like a chump. And so that was a really long year. And we got through that. And then we get to the Harley years, you know. Like Steve Scheibe flew to Holland, I think it was, and we started talking Then He said, what are you doing next year? I said, I don't have anything going. And, you know, there really wasn't no doors opening up in Europe. So I was like, well, and and I was kind of had a bad attitude. I was like, I really don't care. You know, I've done some great things here. It was easy for me. It came easy, it'll go easy. Probably not the ideal way to look at it. And then I came back ink to deal with them for two years to ride the harley and that thing never worked did it i thought you know if i could win on this i'll be president next year you know <laughs> but it was not in the cards and the bike was just just slow on the straights i mean we were 15 mile an hour down on on the suzuki's at road atlanta and road atlanta ain't even got that long of a straightaway but um yes yeah, so, those were two really hard years but I was back home and I was struggling I was struggling off the bike with issues that I had partying too much and uh well your mum had
2: passed away in what 94 yeah Mama so you've been through a lot of stuff personally right in that yeah. period when it was all going on
3: yeah i mean there's a lot going on you know it's like like drinking out of a fire hose you know really for a lot of years um and you know mama decided to take her life in 94 so that was hard right in the the heart of my height of my career you know Mm. so that was tough stuff to deal with i had a friend of mine pass away in california and it was a weird situation so a lot of things had happened through these years.
2: It's funny, it starts going wrong and you think it's not so good, but I mean, you had no mm-hmm. idea it was going to get so bad, did you? No. I mean, you couldn't, it, as bad as it seemed, it was just getting ready to really hit the fan.
3: Yeah. Um,
2: so, what year did you finish with Harley?
3: Um, I ran that for 99 and 2000. So yeah. then
2: no one you got the contract with Ducati. That's
3: right, No one Mitch Hanson, I, I was done. We were finished at Willow Springs, the last race of that Harley, and I was so over getting my ass kicked.
2: Did you have, Did you ever get better than 10th on that?
3: No, 10th was my best finish here at Red Atlanta, my home track. I mean, wow. I could I could do 10th with one arm on the Kawasaki, and I'm yeah. like riding around on this thing, and it was just never gonna get any better. The bottom line is they really didn't know how to they didn't know how to build a motorcycle I mean (laughs) from the get go I was still running one of the same chassis that Duhamel had ran in 94 in 1999 I mean anybody knows aluminum hardens over time and you gotta cycle it out anyway just uh, it was just like really stepping back in time you know and you know god bless them for trying you know they were good people i love yeah. the guys in the team everybody Tryin was really not. cool and it just wasn't gonna ever happen picot rode it well he finished second at one race on the thing i was amazed by the stuff he did on that thing mm-hmm. nevertheless anyway so that ended in 2000 and i'm at the last race and i'm like chris we're done that's it dude so we go to the mexican restaurant down the road and here comes the ducati hmc guys walk in and they're they come over to the table later and like, hey man, what are you doing next year? I'm like going home, and I said I'm on my way to Vegas first, <laughs> and uh, and so I think we had a meeting or something in Vegas maybe, and talked on the phone, whatever, and they talked me into coming and riding their bike, you know. So we did a couple of tests, and Steve Rapp was my teammate, and he was really quick on the very drive. fast, he rode really, really well. On Ducatis and, uh, and everything. Steve's a good rider. I mean, but I, I figured I should be as fast as him, you know. And I was struggling on the Ducati right out of the gate at Willow. And then we get to Daytona, and I ran the first weekend, the amateur weekend, and just just to get track time. And, um, and then we roll around to the to the big race. And where did Ducati- you qualify? I qualified uh, fourth okay so I'll you think. maybe this not maybe fourth because it was they the big buzz second, that you were going right. to give Ducati their yeah. first
2: Daytona 200 win yeah so it was slick, the whole buzz Slick
3: came over um, Fogarty's all crazy yep, yep. what a weird deal like all these years ago and then now yeah. he's working on my bike and uh, the bike was fast because I had checked everybody at, like I do at Daytona at start finish line I, through practice I'll find all the fast guys that I need to know about and I'll See what they got going. And I'll check them at the start-finish line. They might not see it, but I've made a run at their bike, and I know that I can get get past them at the start-finish line. We do the amateur weekend. I get a couple of races under my belt, you know. Just really didn't practice on the start to that very much. And the Ducati has a super tall first gear in it. Oh yeah. So we start the Daytona 200, and my bike had motor on everybody there all week long and we come rolling out race day morning did the warm-up didn't think nothing of it start the race I was second going out of the infield on the turn up into NASCAR one and by the time I got back to start finish line I was 10th or something Suzuki's were passing me everything was passing this bike on the banking I don't know if they detuned the thing or what they definitely had done something to it overnight Maybe they weren't getting fuel mileage they needed. They weren't telling me, they didn't tell me anything, but the bike was not as fast as it was all week. And it didn't take but a few laps into the race, and there was a huge crash in NASCAR 2. It was Aaron Slight hacking, came together, and, and I'm just, it was weird. I'm like rolling down off NASCAR 2, and Aaron Slight sliding down the track underneath. I could see his leg sticking up out from under his bike, and. Hacken's bike is ghost rode itself down into the infield wall and I watched it explode and all this is just like in slow motion so they red flag it and now I'm pissed because I know I ain't got no chance to win this race on this bike because it's too slow so I'm fuming man on the grid you know and you don't you don't perform well when you get angry it's just not the ideal situation so there's the flagman we still have the old flagman and flagman in hand you know flag in hand kind of guy and I tried to anticipate, and you could roll the start back then, you could roll as long as your back wheel didn't cross the start finish line in those days. So here I go, I start creeping, and dude's holding the flag, and he never, and I'm about to creep past the line with the rear wheel, and, he, and he, I had to hit the brake, and as soon as I did, he threw the flag. And I went, and dumped the clutch, and it died. And you know the rest, I got hit by Richie Morris, a couple of guys hit me, And then Richie really nailed me. And broke femur, compound fracture, arm, femur.
2: So why don't we start with you waking up in hospital for part two? Okay. And that'll be a good place to start. Yeah. One, two. (laughs)